So should we be choreographing our, our leg thing here? Oh. Or? oh, I like to do this anyway. Well, you know, you're each your own separate, even though you share sort of one mind for the writing, you're each your own person. We do? Who says we do? <laughs> Whose mind are we sharing? I don't know. Neither of ours. <laughs> if I was sharing his mind, you'd see the perforations on my wrist. Ready to... <laughs> well, you, you're your own people for this interview. Well, Thank you. You can just do whatever you want, so. Uh, actually, we'll we'll start with you then, Jeffrey. Um, how did you break into television? Oh, uh, well, let's see. Oh, a lot of this is going to get cut, right? Edited. Um, Edited. I, I, I think as long as there's no names that are implicated, I think oh, we'll okay. be okay. Well, the way I broke into TV is that, you know, my father, my uncle, my first stepmother, and my stepfather were all in the industry. So I grew up around it, and that meant I knew pretty much everybody, and not a single one of them gave me a job at first. <laughs> Peter laughs at my jobs. Um, I met, uh, I, my first job was delivering call sheets at Paramount, um, which of course we don't do anymore because everything is sent by email. Um, then um, one of my dad's writing partners, a guy named Al Levitt. His real name was Al Levitt. He, he was blacklisted. He and his wife were blacklisted, and they wrote under the name of Tom and Helen August. And many years later, when the blacklist was over, and my dad was graylisted, which meant you were associated with, yeah, I don't think I've told the story before, that if you were graylisted, you were at some point probably going to be called before the committee. Wow. Um, but his friends, the Levitts, after the blacklist was over, they were working on an Aaron's, boy, this is a long story. They were working on a Aaron Spelling show. It was the period when Love Boat was on, which I later worked on, and uh, Fantasy Island, and they wanted to do a show called, uh, I think Aaron had sold a show called Paradise Hotel. And in those that. days, they would give you the pilot script and six episodes, and then they would decide whether they were going to shoot it. They didn't always shoot the pilot. So they gave me a script. I had never written television before. I had, I think I tried to write a, uh, a screenplay in college, not grad school, because I was going to be the great American novelist. And um, I got paid for it. I got in the Writers Guild, and then ABC decided not to make the show. And that was my first job. And then I met my writing partner, my long-term writing partner, who I had a lot in common with because her great uncles and her grandfather were the Fleischer brothers, so Popeye, Betty Boop, Out of the Inkwell. And we worked together 12 years. And um, that's the partnership that Hollywood likes the best is male-female partners. Um, next, they like partners because they like to, you know, they're getting two minds for the price of one. You know sure. how that works. And so we're so that's today. sort of my background, but I was around it all my life. And, and boy, that was long-winded. <laughs> Even by my standards, you can cut around it, I'm sure. Oh, uh, Peter, for you, uh, joke writer, when did you begin? Or maybe that wasn't the Yesterday. first thing you did. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, surprisingly, uh, I came in from the academic side and started studying the psychology of humor and started doing research in it. And then I took some courses in comedy writing and stand-up and got more and more immersed. 
And next thing you know, I was writing joke books. We wrote a few kids' joke books. They sold pretty well. And then started writing nastier adult joke books and fun stuff. And you Not as long as good a story as Jeffrey's. Well, you also... Certainly not as long. (laughs) (laughs) You also balance um, your career, moonlighting, as a therapist or psychologist? Well, I started out as a research psychologist, later switched over to or added clinical psychology to it, where... Actually, here's another in a series of boring stories since Jeffrey started the tradition... I, I developed a course called Instructional Humor, which was a course for public speakers and how to use humor to get their point across. And in doing that, I watched how nervous students would get when they had to get up and deliver anything. This is how I got interested in stage fright. Okay, interesting. Is there, is there room for jokes when you're doing clinical research amongst the colleagues or... That's where you got your material from. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Interestingly, stories help people remember things. When I was a professor, anything I wanted students to remember, I had to come up with a clever, funny example or a clever, funny story to get them to remember the concept. Otherwise, so it's it's a survival skill. The way the mind works, it remembers stories better than facts. Oh, interesting. And that have, explains. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh no, go I was ahead. just saying that explains about history and science for me. <laughs> Not really. Sorry. Have either of you tried stand up? I think I remember you yes, saying I, that you had. I, my actually, my first writing partner, Julie Fleischer, had been in. Um, I don't know. You guys came here too late, but the the Kentucky Fried Theater was sort of the thing of the moment and they did improv shows which were scripted actually I found out later and then they would do some improving with the audience and they their their parents stake them the 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 guys who made went on and made airplane later uh the Zucker Abrams they were cousins and brothers the Zucker brothers and she and she went to work for them and had long been an actress when I met her. She had been an actress and a and a stand up. And one night she did convince me to go to the to the comedy store, and I it was really bad. I mean, it was a Jan you Brady. Know, people moment. were asking for their money back. That's oh, about really? it. You know, doesn't uh, <laughs> get worse than that. No, I had I have no. I wanted to be an actor when I was in high school, and. Uh, I remember doing, I don't think I've told you this story, I think I, I was doing uh, uh, Inherit the Wind, which is, you know, the two main characters are are based on uh, uh, William uh, Jennings Bryan and uh, Clarence Darrow, and they both have these long speeches, and I had to remember, memorize the speech from the Bible, and I went up halfway through it, and drama teacher said, mm, maybe not, you know, maybe something. <laughs> so, yeah. I, uh, I I think I became a I think writers are very often people who fail at everything else, so that's been my experience. That you know I did try a lot of other things and yeah, I. I, I or maybe they're comfortable in their own element, though. 
I mean, that's a whole other topic. Uh, Despite despite the fact that I I love to be around people, I love being alone in a room. And I think you have to have that, too. So, you know. uh, Peter's much more sociable than I am, so um, he's good in crowds. I remember taking a a stand-up class, and the first day, the instructor got up and said, Comedy is a really aggressive art form. If you can't take it, get out. <laughs> Which kind of stuck with me. And the couple of times I got up there and tried it, I said, hmm, harder than it looks on TV. But my wife plays the accordion, and we, have a, we play in a group together, and I get to write the songs in genres that accordion plays with an attempt to make them be funny. And I get to do all the pattern between there, which satisfies my need to do that. Okay. But again, you feel comfortable <laughs> behind a, a typewriter or, or a computer, is that? Um, as we say in Hollywood, I go both ways. Oh. <laughs> I've been waiting right. all week to say that. I, yes, I, I'm not sure how to answer that. Okay. <laughs> Don't try. Take some advice. <laughs> Your new book that just came out is Now That's Funny. And I understand that it's 24 writers and you give them a premise, like a a situation about a mother and daughter. Mm -hmm. And instead of asking them about their process, because I understand you say that's the fastest way to get fiction from an artist is to uh, ask them what their creative process is. Well, you know, when you interview somebody and you ask them about their process, you have no idea what you're getting. And a lot of people sort of romanticize the way they wish their process was. Some will tell you what they think they do. But the easiest way to get at it, the most direct way, is to say, do it and we'll watch. And these people were so nice about letting us do that. And uh, one of the things that we thought was really interesting is the people we had had major credits. I mean, these were people who were showrunners. A lot of these were show creators. And all of them, at one point or another, said, we're kind of nervous doing this because we have one shot at this and then we're going to be compared <clears throat> to our really, really famous peers who might do a better job. And we want to, you know. How so, much time did you give them to work out this premise? As much time as they yeah. needed. The, the average interview was anywhere on. from about an hour to two hours or so. And that was it. They had so their shot. What you're reading in the book is... A liberally ed- edited, so uh, we were very sure. The most important thing to us was the the premise making, because you get twenty four different stories from this one premise, and but great questions come out of it too. But the most important thing that we were sure not to cut was the was the the premise work, and I I think it 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 comes across, and then the little stories that we tell, the little, uh, what, what do you call them? I always forget what you call them. Well, I mean, we tried to Sidebars. We, we tried to put some of our own insights into it when we saw something. And every once in a while, we'd see something really unusual. We'd see trends like um, a surprisingly large number of the writers had graduate degrees in math and science. And I said, like, hmm, that's weird for comedy writers. And one of the things that we found interesting is particularly for TV comedy writers, people in a room, they tend to be more story guys or joke guys. 
And the science math guys were almost exclusively story guys. They were well organized and they were really good at plotting. A lot of the people we, we interviewed also had stand-up backgrounds and they tended to be much more, surprisingly, the joke guys. In fact, there was one funny story that Lou Schneider, who, uh, who wrote for Everybody Loves Raymond, told us a story that he was, they were sitting around the table and one of the guys grabs him and pulls him under the table and he says, pitch this joke for me. He says, pitch it yourself. He says, no, no, you've done stand-up. I want to make sure this gets in. You'll tell it better than me. So people knowing their skill set and, and yeah. what if we were to give you a premise, our own premise? I'm curious how the two of you would work it out. It would be brilliant. I'm, I'm pretty certain. It would be, it would take a couple hours. It would, Okay. Um, Peter, I'm, you know, he, feel free to correct me, but my observation uh, is that I've talked about this a lot with my students because the, a good way to go out of a university, especially as an undergrad, is with a partner. They are much more likely to hire you as a partner when you're young and help you develop your craft than as a solo writer. I'm talking about comedy now. I don't know anything about how drama works, but I'm pretty sure that there's so much cross-pollination now, it's the same. But uh, the way Peter is, it's too I got way away from the story. I, I don't know. What drug am I on today? I have no idea. Um, um, I, um, I, I believe that it is really a bad thing for people to have the same skills when they're partners. So this, this goes toward answering the premise question you asked. Sure. If both people in the partnership have the same skills, I don't see a reason for the partnership. Complementary skills, Peter is... He has two things. One drives me crazy. He is able to put anything down as a draft. He has no blocks. Uh, how he can even call himself a writer without blocks is shameful. <laughs> but he'll just put it down knowing it's awful. It's not ever as awful as he thinks it is. And then he'll say to me, can you work on this and develop it? So whereas I would rather have dental surgery then do a first draft. It's painful for me. But I love rewriting. And uh, Peter is, is capable of seeing structure in his head. I think this comes in part from his science background. Right. I'll start anywhere in the story and just let it write itself. And both of those ways of working on developing a premise or anything else are valid. You know, the one thing we've learned from this book is there isn't any one way to do it. And I don't know if I answered your question, but you I liked did. my answer better than, <laughs> than your what question. I originally did. I mean, <laughs> I have a little blabbermouth going on today. Is but, that, did that sort of answer the question? It, we haven't gotten to it yet, the question. Well, but yeah. but I'll, I will throw in one I was other... I about partnership, I guess. One other sort of interesting thing that we'll get to. It'll be foreplay for the question. Oh, good. Okay. Which is... He is there was a, there was a really <laughs> There was a really huge study on creativity done at Berkeley years ago. And it wasn't just uh, creative artists. It was architects, uh, doctors, all sorts, all, all across fields. And... The two major findings that they came out with were creative people are, have a better ability to tolerate ambiguity and really important, they have the ability to suspend judgment. And one of the things you find, particularly with young writers, 
is they'll write something, then they immediately get depressed saying it's not great. It's not good enough. They're and right. One of the things that, <laughs> and one of the things that, that we've learned and that, that for sure helps me is I want to get something down. Um, we, again, like the, the old Hemingway quote, write drunk, edit sober. So once you get something down, then you have something to work on. And I've never written anything that looks at the end like it started out at the beginning. So I don't, I don't feel constrained about writing anything because I know it's going to get reshaped, retooled, reworked. Yeah, I don't have that. I think the ability to be able to do that is why the partnership works because I can't do that at all. I suffer over my drafts um, and they're still first drafts. I mean, I've never written anything that even after 15 drafts, I didn't think could be better. Um, what so, I have, what Peter has taught me to do is to move on. Oh. And that's really So great. now finally... And I've taught an him to be more careful. No, I'm just kidding. So finally, in answer to your question... Yeah, um, I knew we'd get there eventually. <laughs> I told you, this, this <laughs> was foreplay. This is I'm patient. Yeah. Um, <laughs> is, um, now if you gave us a premise, we would eagerly take a shot at it, knowing that where we started would not be the place where it ended. Okay. And it was particularly fascinating in the book when we had teams working where they would just, one would start riffing and the other would just pick it up and then the other would go back with, and they'd just go back and forth. Right, or they would, they would change the sex. They'd say, we don't know anything about mothers and daughters, but fathers right. and sons we know a lot about, so let's, let's make it a father and son. Or in one case, my favorite interview, they, the grandparents are just lightly mentioned in, 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 in the premise, right. and Lou... Lou uh, Schneider made it a story more about the grandparents and the mother than the daughter. The daughter kind of got lost in it. So, you know, that's the other thing is I think that the book does something that I've never seen a book do before. It replicates, not because of us, because of the writers, it replicates what a writer's room would be like. Because a writer's room you come in, you, you, you might have the arc of the season, you might have those things, but you need episodes along that line. And they'll pitch an idea and somebody go, that's not going to work, or we did that three years ago, or blah, 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 whatever it is. But ideas come in the room, and as Peter said, they are not the same at the end as when they start. Now, I'm going to take us back to your question. Sure. Um, when Jeffrey and I were starting... We, we took a slightly academic view one day and said, what's your prediction about the approach they're going to take? Are they going to go more for story? Or are they going to go more for character? And we found out the answer is neither. They went for conflict. And so if you were to give us a premise to develop, the very first step we would take is, okay, whatever the premise is, where do we get conflict out of it? Okay. If there are two characters involved, how can we make them butt heads to do something? Because everything would come out of that. Can I present my sure. proposed premise? Okay. So it's two men. Uh, both of them are under the age of 40. They're 40, you know, they're, they're getting near there. So uh, you're getting us something we have no relationship to whatsoever. Okay. I can remember. Go ahead. <laughs> so uh, they're brothers. And so we have Adam, who um, had a successful career. I'm not quite sure what he was doing, but his lifestyle caught up with him. Um, he had a lot of money, a lot of uh, beautiful women who were at his beck and call. Uh, but it, it kind of caught up with him. 
And so he's decided to he's decided to downsize his lifestyle and change his mindset. So he meditates, a lot of carrot juice, a lot of spiritual books. Um, and so he's living in a, a rent-controlled Santa Monica apartment, really nice place. And then his brother Evan uh, needs a place to stay for a little bit. Now Evan um, has had a little bit of a gambling issue and uh, tends to uh, have his own um, pharmacy in his bathroom. So he's got a little bit of, a, uh, you know, some kind of a, a recovery issues that he's still working on. Uh, but Evan needs a place to stay. And so he asked to stay at the rent-controlled Santa Monica apartment. But it interferes with Adam's peace of mind. And then it turns out this rent control apartment uh, may be turned into a condominium. And so these different developers need to see the place. So we have Adam who's, he's working, by the way, for a nonprofit, which he gets a fourth of what he made. But he likes it. He feels like he's making a difference. And Evan would like to get a job there too because he needs money. He has like a loan shark that he needs to pay back. And they don't really like him at the nonprofit. He's kind of loud. He's kind of boisterous. He says like off-color things. It's probably not the right Evan. place for him. Yeah, yeah. He hasn't kind of learned, you know, tact. So a quick question. Sure. Adam made all this money. Does he still have it tucked away someplace? Ooh, you know. Because okay. if he downsized and he was really serious about it and donated all the money to PETA, that would be a very different script than if he put that all away, saying someday, you know, I may want to go back or I may want to find a cause that's worthy and it's in there making money for me. Or it's, no, I'm living, this is the new dream. I don't want to have any encumbrances. I don't want to know I could fall back on money. I want to face life every day. That'll make a big difference in the script. Interesting. I hadn't thought about what his bank account looked like. Well, that's why we have these talks. Okay. That, that's um, good. I, yeah. So, okay, so that's part of what we get to play with then. Okay, great. His Go bank ahead. account. Because mm -hmm. already you could start to see the conflict if Evan knew that Adam had this money tucked away but refused to use it. So he's constantly trying to find ways to trick Adam into l loosening the purse strings a little bit. Right. So he's trying to constantly scam his brother. No, really, this, this money is going to go to, to help uh, uh, young uh, blind orphans from, uh, from Kenya who are uh, secreted away by this terrorist group and we're trying to get them out. And so you're not going to deny these kids, are you? And I have, a, I have a secret contact. And so if you just give me some money, I can... I mean, so every day there's a new scam. Right away, you have a built-in source of conflict. I also think what Peter's talking about is developing, sorry, I touched my mic, couldn't help it. Um, <laughs> I think you, you have to develop the world. There's an old expression that comes from burlesque, um, which I don't think I've shared uh, yet today, although I'm having short-term. Please keep your clothes uh, on. There, there was, uh, when the comedians would come out on stage, they needed to give the backstory or exposition and so they would say, and there'd be a scrim of Seville, Spain, and they would say, so, well, Ab Abbott would say to Costello, here we are in sunny Spain. So the audience would right away be oriented. And I think, I think that to write, particularly in a comedy premise, you have to show them the world that exists at the time. So would this be, this could be a premise pilot, which means that we see the one brother, the sort of, 
ne'er do well brother moving in, or it could be a, or it could be a what we call a mid-slice pro, uh, pilot, which we learned all about when we were when we were working on. Now that's funny, and a mid-slice is just, um, it's the world ongoing. You're already in the world. Yeah, they're already together. Yeah, They've already been living already together for a while, and later you could see the backstory and how it happened. If I were developing this premise uh, for real. I would try to make the brothers even more different because what you've got is a basic odd couple premise. And uh, I mean, you know, I'll talk to anybody for as long as they'll let me about Neil Simon and what he did for comedy and how he pushed that type of comedy forward. And you can see how many people he influenced. Uh, there's, I mean, uh, Grace and Frankie is basically an odd couple show. If you've seen it on Netflix, it's amazing. Um, Mom, which is a big hit, that's an odd couple situation. Two and a Half Men is basically the odd couple with a kid. Um, so this is kind of an odd couple situation, but mm -hmm. but in the Charlie Sheen, John, um, oh, I was blank on his last name, who was the other brother. It never helps, Peter. Um, <laughs> Uh, you give, is it a Pavlovian response? He salivated. Yeah. Um, the brother was very uptight and straight, and Charlie Sheen was kind of. So I was thinking that it made no sense. It was it was kind of out of character for the the uptight brother, the one with the money, to be the guy that had girlfriends at his back. Unless you could make that believable to me, but that the other brother didn't know how to treat women. I'm not saying that's the way it would necessarily go, but at least you'd be... Because unless you have characters who are very, very different and very, very specific, right. you but, don't have uh, conflict. Now, again, um, when we... That's just me, though. When we interviewed Yvette Bowser, mm -hmm. um, she was great because she said, when I start, I have a whole list of traits. And I take each of my characters and I run through... Where are they politically? Are they left or are they right? Where are they financially? Are they conservative or they gamblers? Um, what kind of music do they listen to? What kind of... So again, as we take these two characters, um, you know, my first bent is, um, what were their folks like? Was one more like mom? Was one more like dad? Is that a never-ending source of conflict between him? Or dad always liked you better, or mom always liked... So all of these things go into making up their characters. And then the trick is going to be how to not make them too unidimensional. The carrot brother is always good and always nice, and the other brother is yeah. always trying to scam and always nasty. So, right. so the scamming brother has to have a couple of things that he does that are really wonderful and nice and right. charitable. And the other guy has to have it, you know, when nobody's looking, maybe then he takes a little extra Bosco when nobody's looking. And, puts it into his carrot juice, you know, <laughs> something where they become a little more humanized. You're, say, you're, you're saying you want to make them three-dimensional. Yeah. yeah. And, and so again, yeah. but the jokes are going to come out of dimensionalizing the character. Um, and so each yeah. time we have a situation, we know, we were just talking about this before today, um, this is the, uh, the Charlie Peters concept again, that when you have a third object, so he gave us an example in the book of this concept called a third object. And the example he gave us was... Um, a deer is it, on the hill. There's a deer on the hill, and it's, it's set in Beauty and the Beast. 
and beauty, not the Disney version. And Beauty looks at us, oh, what a cute little deer. And the beast is salivating, saying dinner. <laughs> and so that you see the two takes of the same object. And they're and never all of a sudden, you've totally differentiated the characters yeah. without having to describe them. You see it in the reaction. So again, as each thing happens, right. you know, they find the uh, the wallet on the street with money in it. And one is saying, well, how much did we get? And the other says, how can we find whose wallet this is? So taking each event that happens and then you're constantly seeing the two of them taking a totally different look through the way we dimensionalize their characters. One more little uh, piece of information to our scenario is that um, Adam, who's Mr. You know, meditator and you know, reads a lot of Ram Dass and he's just very spiritual, um, he used to date a woman who was a model who he's, you know, since lost contact with and their lifestyles are totally different. Well, unbeknownst to him, the other brother meets this model at a bar and Adam comes back from his nonprofit and they're both sitting on the couch watching TV. So he's so, met the ex-girlfriend. Right, right. First thing I would say to that is what my father taught me, which is you've got to make it believable, particularly, and I think that's even more true today in the in the post-Mary Tyler Moore, post-Cheers, post-Fraser world, uh, which were, well, Fraser was a satire, but it was still real. And yet, in the interim, we've still had these crappy sitcoms that makes no sense. So, but the really good sitcoms, the people are believable. There's a difference between believability and reality. If I, I the first thing I would change is I wouldn't have them met at a bar. Needed okay. a bar because right away I'm saying that's a little easy. If they went to a charitable event, yeah, then it's plausible to have See the model be them. there, and then the brother happens to hit on her and they click a little, and he's got to react to them. But again, Jeffrey's made it plausible by doing. See, that. the other note I would add is I would have the the charity the chair the brother who meditates and gives money to chair you know maybe he runs a foundation hmm. maybe he's not living in a small apartment maybe it's not rent control that feels like a different show to me uh, -huh. uh this is what happens in a room this is exactly yeah, the stuff that it. happens in a room except you're there 12 to 14 hours and the food is usually <laughs> lousy but uh, you know and you're not serving. Depending on who you're the show serving lunch. Depending today. on who the showrunner. The least you could have learned. done for these people is serve lunch. I think. I'm drinking their water. <laughs> um, but I think that like what you nothing. do is again, it's back to Peter's thing of don't. I tell students all the time, please don't get hung up and protective of the first idea. You know, develop it. Feel good about hitting blind alleys because that means you're making progress. So for me. I like the idea that the brother, it was it was somebody that he never thought he could get, and it ended, and he never really knew why it ended. And they're at a charitable charity function. And he's gotten the funky brother to go with him, right? And and right away, there's a story for the pilot. That's a great pilot story. Um, but I think you always have to say to yourself, and easier said than done. Is this, could, like Phil Rosenthal said, could this happen? Is it plausible? And Phil used to do, I don't know if you've been watching the history of comedy on CNN, but it's wonderful. And one of the things they, it wasn't in our book, unfortunately, Phil's in our book, 
but he said that he used his assignment every weekend was go home and get in a fight with your spouse and come back on Monday and tell me about it. Oh, great. So I think that's kind of adding to, I think that's kind of adding to, to what Peter's saying is find something, not that's never been done because everything's been done. And what's going to make it unique is your voice. Now, the other thing about your premise that we have to make sure of is it's not that tough to write a pilot episode. Yeah. But how are we going to get right. two years worth of stories? Two minimum. This? So, I mean, when we present, when we're trying to sell it, we can't go in there with three ideas. We have to start showing where this can go, remembering that in a sitcom, um, each episode is going to have a little arclet but it can't have a beginning, a middle, and an end because the characters have to endure from week to week. They're going to want to see the carrot juice drinker drinking carrot juice every week, so he can't change that. And the other guy has to be kind of a sleazeball, druggy guy, even though he can go in and out of detox all the time. He can have new resolves to stop each time. You know, He could drink carrot juice with his brother, <laughs> then go back and get his bourbon to drink later when he's not looking. But those characters have to endure so that every time something happens, we can see the two of them react to it differently. I want to give you an example of a really successful show that started in 2005 and went off in 2014. So nine seasons, many Emmys, uh, How I Met Your Mother. The two guys that created it were, um, they knew at the very beginning of the show they knew how the last episode would end. Um, if you watch the nine seasons, you see how they go to that story. People change over the nine years. And, and because you also have to be aware, and this is another thing I tell students because they forget, the difference between writing a novel or writing a short story is when you're writing anything dramatic, you're not, you're primarily writing it, A, to get a producer interested or, you know, not in television, it's not directors, but you're also writing it for actors to speak. And if an actor isn't interested, it's not going to get made, no matter how good it is. So I think people a lot of times forget how important good dialogue is. And the only way that you can really, in the end, write sitcom is if you can write dialogue. I think that you could probably get away with writing a good action movie if your dialogue is okay because they're gonna hire, uh, poor Carrie Fisher used to get hired to rewrite dialogue at 300,000 a week and Charlie Peters used to do that work. And But, but you know, um, you just take the movie about the tornado about 20 years with Helen uh, Hunt and yeah, and, and poor Bill Paxton, and and uh, uh, and you know they had lines like "Hold on to your seat." I mean, you really don't have to write. You know, don't let that table go. You know, I think I'm stealing from Rob Reiner. I think he was making jokes about it, but you know, you can write those kind of movies and be okay. There's no way that you can write a great. I mean, the thing, the best thing about Frasier was the dialogue and how sure. each character, nobody spoke like anybody else. It was, And again, it all came out of characters. the character traits, that the dialogue has yeah. to match the traits. Yeah. Oh, 
Okay, good point. So let's say with our two brothers, mm-hmm. so we have Adam who's, he chooses his words very carefully. He wants to make sure that he doesn't offend anybody. He's totally, there was, a, there was an old Thomas Mann book called Transposed Heads where they had a holy man who would walk through the woods with a broom sweeping in front of him so he didn't step on any insects. He was a Taoist. Okay. So, so again, <laughs> he's going to be a character that is so PC that it's going to be scary. Right. And he wants to make sure nobody is ever offended. I have an idea. Okay, please. Peter's gave me an idea. I think he should have a charity that he run. I think he should have a foundation. That means he has work. I, me personally, I'm just, uh, I personally, I don't know which is correct. Uh, I'm tired of seeing shows where people don't work or we don't know anything about what they do. And I'm also tired of seeing shows where it's all about the work. So I'm kind of a curmudgeon about this, but what if we had a foundation? Okay. Um, it's, a, it's a 501c3. Yeah. So he's gone through and all And he's the got the money stuff. and he's given up the corporate life for this, which goes along with what you pitched. And um, he wants his brother to work. Right. He wants his brother to have the sense of uh, the work ethic that he has, and he and he can still. And what the idea Peter gave me is, he picks a charity, and I couldn't come up with that right now. But he picks a charity, he picks a, something that nobody else would pick that is a little bit wacky. <laughs> because that you get stories out of, but the you know the Taoist thing of brushing the, you know uh, brushing the insects out of the way is funny. I'm not saying do that, but I would try to find something that not a lot of other people who start foundations would do. You know, in foundations you get a lot of power to choose who you're going to give money to. I mean, the, the Ford Foundation is famous for that. That they have overlooked some really good people and given money. All foundations have but, made but that But I mistake. could also see that if you go to his office at the foundation, everything looks pretty cool. But if you know him a little better and you go back, you can't believe he's living in a tiny little hovel apartment. Mm-hmm. Well, so his Warren person, Buffett. Warren yeah, Buffett. So yeah, he lives in a little town in Nebraska. Yeah. So the right. whole idea of you could afford to have your own Trump Tower if you wanted. Ooh, ooh. And yet, everything was going so great. Erase that Wait, part. wait, wait, but I'm, I'm making a contrast from him. Sheesh. See, you can be too PC. I think it's called being peed on here. No, but the, the very idea that um, people think they see him in this large scale, you know, incredible place for his charity because he's doing everything upscale to make the charity work, not realizing that in his own personal life he comes back and, you know, he's wearing sweatpants and he's, you know, sitting on the floor doing yoga and he's got to push the furniture aside because there's not enough furniture to do all the postures um, in the room. And that's the way he wants, this austere lifestyle. And then his brother could constantly be, like if he goes to work for him, saying, look, you, look at this palace we're working in. Why are we living in this hovel? So there's constantly pressure saying, loosen up, loosen up the purse strings. You don't have, you know, wear new, buy new sweatpants. Right, right, he right. feels guilty. So with the dialogue between the two of them, how would it be? Because although they they have two different mindsets and styles of relating to people, but they've also known each other since they were very young. The first thing it makes me think of is Adam is hyper PC, but he's human. 
So every once in a while, when he bangs his shin on the tub, <laughs> something else is going to come out. When something makes him really angry, something is going to come out that all of a sudden, like, ooh, instead of this, my middle finger just came out. <laughs> oh, I just spoke Italian. <laughs> you know, so each one of those little bursts, these lapses become very funny because it's out of character or it's what he doesn't want him, you know, he doesn't want to let that out of himself. He thinks he's he's purged himself of all of that. Sure. So it becomes much funnier when he does it. And and how on the nose is the dialogue? Because they kind of know how, each how other. How do you mean? They, well, I mean, it seems like you know when they they say when when two people know each other for a long time, they almost don't even have to say the full sentence. They can just say a word. They can grunt, and the other person knows what that means. Yeah. But to me, what make actors? But to me, what's way. funny is that Evan remains consistent all the way through, but Adam went through his transformation. So he doesn't talk like he used to, and that, that really yeah, pisses good. Evan off, saying, you, you know, what happened to the guy that I used to, you know, play, you know, play catch with in the backyard? Where has he gone? Now everything you're saying is, no. Let your He'd also be trying to prick the bubble all the time. Sure, and, sure. Yeah. and sometimes it makes him frustrated. Sometimes he takes it as a challenge. I mean, I remember as a kid, I, I had a job working swing shift at a credit card company in the mail room. And one of the guys there was a Mormon. And hey, he, would bring, Mormon. he would bring his lunch every day and he wouldn't hang out with anybody else. And people would constantly try and get him angry. And like they would take a paper clip and a rubber band, go up behind him and smack him in the head. And that yeah. really hurts. And instead of getting mad, he'd say, please don't do that, that really hurts. And then all of a sudden you'd feel guilty for doing it, but you'd do something else because you wanted him to curse at you. And the more he wouldn't curse, the more mean the things were that you tried to do to get him to break. So I could see Evan constantly prodding saying how can i how can i get him to break this facade that i know is really a facade all right so i just thought of something else again he gave me um particularly on the networks but i think everywhere now there has to be something going on well i take fraser for example if it had just been the father living with fraser and the bro brother's problems i don't think the show would have worked they needed him to be a radio psychiatrist that was a big part of the show he had to have somewhere to go where he got him because the premise of that show was Frazier hangs himself every you know hangs him uh, falls on his own what's that expression your own petard he <laughs> yeah and he you know he would give someone He's advice his own and it would fall, you know but the thing that I think this show needs which it doesn't quite have yet although you're on the way well, we've been working on it 12 minutes, that's nothing, right? Is you need some kind of platform. There's a, a the networks, uh, in, in, in other words, let's be more at stake than just their relationship. Uh, so well, it, so well, for example, oh, go ahead. Well, no, I was just gonna say, we had the model before, the, the two of them competing again for the same woman mm -hmm. who could be living next door just as easily. Yeah, but oh, I, I wouldn't buy good. that show. No. No, well, not enough at stake for me. I mean, I've seen that. It's a romantic comedy. I wouldn't want to watch well, that every week. I mean, Big, Bang, Big nice. Bang did okay with that. What? Big Bang did okay with a pretty girl yeah, next Big door. Big Bang has the other element know, know, of their scientists and the one... No, no, I'm just saying yeah. 
the fact that normally here are two guys who don't compete. One is successful, one is is on his knees begging all the time. Right. So to where what arena can they possibly compete in? There's sort of only one. Well, the model though she might tempt the carrot juice meditating brother back into his old ways. Well, but the whole point is... That, that would be interesting. But, right. but the whole point is, he's constantly monitoring himself from going back there. And I remember I had an argument with a, an old friend of mine... Wait, who wait, a, wait a second. Hold it. You had an argument with somebody? Who was a fundamentalist Baptist minister. Aye. And we talked about the movie The Last Temptation of Christ. Aye. And I was saying... Christ wins. He battles his own temptation and triumphs over it. So as a psychologist, I'm saying he talked himself out of doing something that was bad, trying for the spirit. And he said, no, we believe once you entertain the thought, you're guilty of commission of the sin. Oh. And so again, this whole idea that he's constantly battling him, I've got to keep myself pure. Right. Um, and so yeah. she could, you know, she wants to, you know, hey, you know, if you're going to be with me, you, you got to loosen up and take a little drink. You got to take a hit on this joint. You got to, you know, all the things. He I don't think want. that's a show yet, though. I mean, those are all really good ideas, but it's I not mean, even, we haven't even really, hit the 15 that's minute what you mark need yet. to know about comedy <laughs> as opposed to drama. Comedy is much harder to write. There's no question about that because I think people can agree pretty much on what drama is and isn't. Everybody's got an opinion about comedy, but for me anyway, one of the reasons I think Grace and Frankie works, if you haven't seen it, do you know what the premise is? I don't. Okay, so it's two older women in their 70s who don't like each other. Jane, oh, Fonda, right. Jane Fonda is the sort of, she was a model mm -hmm. and then started a very famous business. Their, their husband or law partners. And Lily Tomlin, who in real life is one of Jane Fonda's closest friends, is a sort of hippy-dippy right, right. woman who's still in the early 70s. And their husbands, they all go to dinner and the women think they're going to announce that they're retiring. And instead they announce that they're in love, they're gay, and they want to move in together. And so you have that. It isn't just the two women who are so different have to live together. Because what happens is the women get the beach house in Malibu and the men take one of the two houses in town and I you know I haven't watched it since the first season but it's really good and what I think this is just my opinion but what I think makes it work is you've got both things going and you've got more stories because you've also got Martin Sheen and Sam Waterston's story you've got but, the but remember we story. haven't populated this sitcom no no We've no only got but it isn't characters. just populating it I think what a network is going to say if you're going to a network because there's a lot of shows on Netflix that are very thin and still really, you know, there's one show called Love, which is just about a, these two mismatched people who date each other and fall in love and they, they would never be together. And I lost interest in the show after a while because that's all it was. And that's just me. But for me, if I'm going to a network with this, I would have to have a, uh, you, you have to have somewhere that this thing takes place other than the apartment because I'm going to get bored and I don't know how I'm going to get four seasons. No, and that's remember, what they want but, now. But remember, okay, so as always, I agree with Jeffrey and and think for and openers, what universe? for openers, 
you know, two easy ways to go are one, they're in their 40s, their parents could still be around. And so you can have a whole new set of conflicts in there. Plus, they're at work. And since he's got them there at work, you've got a whole bunch of different people in there to interact with. Mm -hmm. And again, you can have people at this place of work that range anywhere from, you know, they'd rather die than see a, uh, um, a, uh, a dolphin in a tuna, a tuna net to people who were saying, hey, right. let's put on some rock shows. Let's really get some glitz here. Let's get more celebs involved here. So, I mean, there's all kinds of places That's to good. take That's this. That's good. That's what I'm talking but, about. Yeah. But I'm I, saying, but initially, I still want to get what are the big conflicts between the two main characters because they, you want to make sure they're seeing everything differently and that their goals are always crossed. Now, interestingly, uh, one of our favorite interviews... Um, in, in one of in, our uh, one of our twenty four you mean one one of our favorite <laughs> one of our twenty four favorite interviews and now that's funny um, was when we did Leonard Stern again who made a big point of saying conflict is a, is at the absolute base of all my comedy but it's never hostile it's always out of love and we talked about it it's kind of like it took me back when I heard that to I love Lucy where every episode of I Love Lucy was, you know, they all loved their, their best friends and each other, but they always had a conflict about what they should be doing to express that love. You know, we should go here. No, we should go there. We should buy this. No, we shouldn't buy this. And it was always, this would be best for you. Listen to me. I know better. But always banging heads, but not trying to hurt the other person, not competing, but saying, because I love you, I want what's best for you. Okay. But, and so again, yeah. one of the interesting things in this comedy that I see in the premise that makes it good is they are brothers. So no matter how bitterly they fight, bottom line, they're going to take care of each other. Maybe the father was successful and had a bankruptcy and they had to downsize. So they always remembered that experience of being in like the good neighborhood. And then for mm -hmm. a temporary setback, sure. the dad had to move them to maybe a rougher part of town, they had to go to public school. Well, then you lose the only. I'm just going to play oh, network yeah. mm -hmm. executive. Oh, please, yeah, yeah. Because they'll always disagree with anything you pitch. Okay. Um, and that's not necessarily bad. That means that they're. It's like oh, Peter always says that means they're engaged. It doesn't mean you made a sale, but at least you got them involved. Um, then, uh, as a network executive, I would say, yeah, but then you lose the foundation. And, Whereas if the father had made a very big success of the foundation, I've never seen a show about a foundation, by the way, about a, about a, uh, um, you know, a nonprofit that's like the Ford Foundation or the Carnegie Foundation. I've never seen that. Right. Um, Actually, there was a bunch of episodes about one in, on Modern Family. Yeah, but the, the but was the series, it. right? No, but he worked at it for like. Uh, I thought he 10, was a real estate guy. Film. Who are we talking about? No, the, one of the the, the uh, red-headed gay brother. Oh, worked at a foundation. He's a lawyer, for like right? And so he worked. There. But but anyway, um, you don't but, ever do that in a meeting. The, by the way, let them do that. But but what oh, he just did. Oh, what did he? I'm sorry for you what? You never tell them when you're pitching to them what other show. That's kind of passe. It used to be. It used to be when you were pitching something, you would say it's such and such meets such and such. People hate that now because oh. they want you to come in, especially in TV. I don't know about movies, but anyway, go ahead. <laughs> I thought well, that after was that really dressing important. down. I mean, he's uh, taking the rest of the interview. I'm not saying another word. <laughs> 
Yeah, that'll be the day. Well, can I, sorry, let me just interject, and I don't know if I should be doing this, I by like the way, in the pitch meeting. I each other, but, but But the, the, my, my point was that they bonded over having sort of a fall from grace. They That's had another kind way of, to go, yeah. Yeah, and so they, even though they're at polar, they're, you know, they're, their lifestyles are different, their ethics are different, they remember those hard times because they got bullied in school. Jeffrey, Jeffrey and I gave uh, a couple of talks at a... a organization called Script Fest. And he bought me a t-shirt that said, what if, in big letters. <laughs> so you're doing a what if, which is great. That's the and most in a writer's thing. room, what we'd all be doing then is saying, okay, what if it was the mom that made the big success and dad always felt weird about it? Mm -hmm. What happens if they, you know, so there's so many different places to take it. And I remember when uh, when Mark and Paul did their interview, um, that would be they, Mark Chitlick Mark and Chicken. Paul. No, Mark Paul Chitlick and Mark Scheffler. Right. Yeah. Um, and they started out with um, they were doing talking about square dancing in Arizona, and they got into <laughs> how Jews don't square dance, right. and so yes, they do. It's a great place These to meet women and. Everybody has sex after a square dance, and all of a sudden they ended up with a, um, a uh, an outlaw Harley Davidson shop with a motorcycle gang. So just just from playing like we're playing here, that so premise just, was so good. But it's just the idea of you know you kick around ideas till you see where it goes. But again, for me, I I keep taking it back to the two guys have to be as opposite as we can make them, and there always has to be pressure. So. The fact that he's got money and doesn't want to use it this way and he wants the money is a, a great source of pressure. Mm -hmm. And then all the different ways he tries to get it. So sometimes he looks like he's reformed, thinking he'll get it that way and no, and sometimes he sees the con and doesn't get it. So you always have that constant pressure, but underlying it, still you have the bond that they're brothers and will always help each other. You know, so there's caring at the same time, there's really strident competition. Mm -hmm. You have a good basis. And then any situation you put them in, they're always going to see it differently. Um, Bob Orsi, who is a big producer, uh, writer, a lot of features, lot, created a lot of drama series, works a lot with J.J. Abrams. He told me that post-2008, every television series that will be on will be so influenced by and he's turned out to be right that by cable and and now netflix that there will be even sitcoms will there won't there'll be very few shows where the characters don't grow in the old days when i started on sitcoms you could watch a show and then not watch 10 shows and you can come right back to it that's going away, I think, and I think that's a great thing because it means the characters can go. Veep is the perfect example of that. Yes, it's a sitcom, but and she's horrible. She's I don't know if you've ever seen it, but she's Julie Louise Dreyfus. Louis Dreyfus's character is just an awful human being, but she's doing it with this wink and a nod, and it's satire. So you you like her. And, but she changes a lot and the situation changes. But what makes that show work is that she's the when you meet her, she's about to be the vice president of the first woman vice president. And so I was raised, and this is just you know how I was brought into the businesses, 
what do you call see i'm losing words today i couldn't think of marshmallow, marshmallow. <laughs> what is it you know when you actually buy a, you better cut this later but <laughs> the when you buy a best western there really is no best western chain you buy it and you get to use their towels and their name and all what's that called oh, franchise franchise, franchise. Yeah. networks still to this day talk about a franchise and that they want to know and it's a way of helping them get stories. So my vote is that the the straight brother it was changed by having to take over the foundation. And he brings the other brother in to help him. And then because he's helping him, all hell breaks loose. I mean, that would be one way to go. It's certainly not the only way to go. The other way is to have them on their uppers, which is what you suggested. Uh, you know, that they're broke. Um, I, either way can work. You know what it really all depends on, Karen? Is the writer any good? <laughs> because the greatest premise in the world uh, can be ruined by lousy writing. So, it, and again, it all goes back, does an actor want to play this? Because we're past the day when you could get something on. Even Aaron Sorkin can't get something on if a good actor doesn't want to play it. He's a playwright, so he comes from theater he wouldn't want to do something without really great actors. That's why Woody Allen always says to actors, hey, if you don't like the words, change the words. You're the actor. You're the one with the ear. Not many writers will say that. So my, my, my note to any writer out there who's just starting, you need, you need to know that you are writing for actors. You are not writing just for executives. You have to write dialogue. That's why get people to read it, have a reading, Refine your dialogue because people read five pages and if they're not taken, they're not going to read the rest. So I'm saying that one of showrunner told me recently who works for us, actually it's Bob Meyer, mm -hmm. told me that what you want in a room is the 12 to 14. It takes about four days to get a story. That's why they work on multiple stories at a time because they're on a deadline. You know, the writers come back. On a network show, the actors leave in June or late May or maybe even April, and then everybody takes a hiatus, and the, and the writers come back in late May, early June, and they've got, to get, they've got to get a head start on 24 shows. So they can't be working on one story at a time, but they break the stories in the room, and this is the first step of that. And then the, the decider is the showrunner will go, you know... I, I've seen it happen. I've been in rooms where it's happened where, where <laughs> I go, well, you may like foundations and you may like the brothers being rich, but nobody, I, that's not my show and I want it this way. So there's usually a pilot that has been written by one person, not by a staff. So the, the tone has been set, you know, and if you have a great showrunner like Phil Rosenthal or Bob, they want a lot of involvement. But Bob says it's, disagreement is wonderful mm -hmm. arguing and being like my idea is better than your idea and screw you and screw you that's not a good room to be in that's a nasty room and does that happen I, by the way uh, i was in a room briefly where people topped each other um and uh it it was not a pleasant experience. I uh, tell the story well, about Walt Bennett. That's a great oh, example. I was going to tell I, a different story, but I'll tell that one first. I take. Oh, requests. you're going to tell two stories. I take requests. 
Um, well, we, no yeah, one requested it. Bird? When Walt was a was a was a baby writer uh, in a room, he he pitched a joke and oil painting, and then twenty minutes later, a more seasoned writer told the same. He pitched the same joke. Everybody cracked up, and so Walt said, "Hey, I just pitched that joke twenty minutes ago," and they said, "Come on, don't be like that." <laughs> Which is, that is, that is an excellent example of what I was saying. But, is, um, yeah. One of the writers was, um, uh, David Breckman was telling us what it's like to write on SNL. And he said, the, the competition is so fierce because you've got a 90 minute show, you've got two musical episodes, you've got weekend update, you've got the intro where they, the guy comes in, and then Half of the cast, at least, has standing characters that they write for. So there's only a few new bits every week. And all the writers in the room are competing to try and get something in those couple of little spots. So it's really fierce. And if you go long enough without getting your stuff on the air, well, what are we paying you for? And you're gone. Oh, wow. That's so, a lot of pressure. Yeah, that's a lot of pressure. is tough. I've been told that he's tough. But he's right. He's right if... But you can imagine the pressure of a yeah. you know, new writer coming in there, and it's it's a battle. You know, you have to have. It's like walking the streets of New York. You got elbows. You know, if you're gonna get anywhere. Plus, no one tells you the unspoken rules and the things because you know, then you're a threat. Yeah. yeah. Maybe you'll your story, like this foundation story, will, you know, supersede anything else that's. But you know, there's <laughs> yeah, an interesting yeah, thing that. Yeah. But there's an interesting thing that happened in here. An interesting dynamic that we'll mention for a minute, yeah. which is we? you shh, you <laughs> asked us how we would establish a story. And, and then in the middle of it, you said, well, how about if we did this to it? And one of the ways you tell seasoned writers from new writers, um, a lot of writers, unfortunately, when they're pitching a story, um, let me intrude with a joke. Um, how many producers does it take to screw in a light bulb? The answer is, does it have to be a light bulb? Um, it's a terrible old Hollywood joke, but <laughs> it gets to the idea that when you're pitching a story, sometimes the producer or the exec who's listening will start saying, well, could it be this? Couldn't we do this? Couldn't we do that? And they start to think, hey, whose story is this? And I'm the writer, and what are you? Foolish. That, that's, uh, as the French say, an amateur. Um, when you're a seasoned writer and the person you're pitching to makes any suggestion at all, you say, that's wonderful. Give me more. Oh. Because you're starting to get a creative collaboration going. They're interested enough in what you're saying to want to be part of it. And you want to invite that. That's the beginning of a green light. Yeah. And uh, part yeah. of the irony is half the time they don't even remember what they said. Yeah. You don't have to use it, but it doesn't matter. The, mi the minute they're invested enough to want to make suggestions, they're saying, I've got something that's hitting them. Yeah, I, I tell you, um, Bob Orsi again told me that uh, we were, well, we, he came, to, he came to, to LMU and he gave a talk and then he followed it up by bringing J.J. Uh, uh, Abrams and a bunch of other people. But some, one of the grad students got up and said, well, you know, you've done a lot of movies, you know, he did all the Spider-Man movies, you know, Star Trek, all these things. And, he's, and this kid said, well, what if you don't like the note? And he said, what do you mean if I don't like the note? Well, do you have to take the note? 
He said, I have to make sense of the note under the note so that I can make the executive happy because that's my boss. You know, if you're, if, if, you know, everybody has to take notes. Believe me, Spielberg still takes notes, probably fewer than we do. <laughs> but, um, you know, when we were working on this book, Rudy gave us some notes. I don't, I don't think that... Um, I know for a fact Peter wasn't happy with all of them, but what Peter can do really, really well is um, he can he can translate the notes so that he can make the editor publisher happy, but still kind. Of, and that's what Bob was saying: is you have you can't turn your back on people who are paying you, and that that's sort of a, that's a young person's fantasy. Uh, I don't think there's any part of the arts where you could do that. A poet can't do that. A, a nice you part to, to talk about here is that when you're pitching a project, people think, okay, did you like my work? And in many, many cases, they don't buy the work you brought in, Correct. but they might say, but I like the way you work. I like the way you think. And they'll say, we have this other project. Would you be interested? So you're in there pitching yourself sometimes more than your project. Right. And so if you go in there saying, what do you mean they have to be 30 years old? I had them in there as 24-year-olds. You're done. Then you're toast. They say, why would we ever want to work with you? Yeah. There is but if you're saying, there. hmm, 30, wow, that, I like that. You, know, you have a much better chance of I, I said being this a to Peter this morning that I believe that we're in a period of less tolerance for entitlement than ever before. That that J.J. Abrams has a rule, he and his wife at their company, that the minute someone shows any form of entitlement, any form of, you know, where's my office with the corner view on the 12th floor, bye, because there's just too many people who won't behave that way. And, and you know, it used to be, now I'm sure there are still people who can get away with that, you know, but I think Do you know, he looked less. at me when he said that. I didn't look at you. I was afraid to look at you. Anyway. Right. If I were to go in to pitch this to someone and I was pitching it to the two of you mm -hmm. and you, you both said, uh, we, yeah, we don't like this and this and this. So would the open and workable response from me, i.e. the writer, be, great, I can come back and change it and could we meet again? It with depends. The, okay. I, the first I would, thing you have to do. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go no, ahead. I mean, I, I would not say that. I would say, what parts of it didn't you like? Mm -hmm. How would you like to see it done? Because if they haven't started the creative collaboration, maybe I can start it. And so if they say, well, I see it, you know, working much better with a, you know, for a younger market, and uh, I'd like to to make these, you know, um, mid-teens, I'd say, oh wow. I hadn't thought of it that way. Yeah, then you could da 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 da, and the more I the more I can get you involved. Mm -hmm. Is another trick that we learned from someone who's not in the book, my mentor, who is in his nineties now, but sharp as a tack, and he he used to go in and pitch, tele, you know, like ongoing series, and let's say, but you always, by the way, you're never going to go to a pilot meeting and have one pilot idea. And you're going to have somebody who's more powerful than you, or you're not going to get anywhere. And 
you're going to have an agent who got you in the door unless you're very lucky. And I'm not sure that's luck because you do need someone looking out for you and protecting you. But the other thing that Peter's always said, and this I think comes from his science background, is try to find out what kinds of things that producer, that executive likes. Because if you go in and pitch them Westerns and they hate Westerns, you're dead before you open your mouth. And that's maybe more for movies, I don't know, but let's but say... Just, but just to follow that idea, mm -hmm. if you have an idea for a Western and you know that they've made a, a movie about an orphan and that really touched their heart, then you make sure you have an orphan in your Western so that you have a way okay. to connect. Or if you're like me, you try to find out what directors they admire and then find a, a Western that director made. So... Um, for example, if you know they like um, Martin Ritt, they, they think Martin Ritt is the greatest director, find, that, find some way in, I guess is what we're saying. And the other, the, the other thing is when they say no, move on. Don't argue. Never get defensive, never argue. Yeah, because you never want to go in with one idea. You're going in with one idea, you're asking. Unless, you know... Obviously, Aaron Sorkin, they're going to come to Aaron. I mean, there's a group of people they go to. <laughs> Pilot writing is almost, in my experience, and I think it's the same as it is now, is almost never done by beginners. They want to go, and it makes sense for them, right? So if, for example, you pitch this to a showrunner, the only way you're going to get it made, because you don't have any, I'm not talking about you in reality. I'm talking about you, this person who hypothetically pitched this. Right. You're going to want somebody who really knows what they're doing or they will bury you and they'll make a bad deal with you. Whoever it is, you want someone who's got some chops and some power. Can, can we slip in a little bit of pedantry for just a moment? Oh, please. That's uh, my favorite. I, I don't know what it means, yeah. but it sounds good. <laughs> it comes from, comes from <laughs> academia. One, one, of, like one, of my, one of my favorite books uh, is a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. It's probably the smartest book I've read in the last 30 years. Um, and it, it basically has the thesis that we have two modes of thinking. One where we get very, very rigorous and think very hard and deep, and the other is we think intuitively. And we make just about all our decisions intuitively. And what's kind of interesting is that when we're forced to think deeply, which we don't like to do because it's hard, not only are we thinking deeply, but we're cranky as we're doing it because it takes a lot of our resources. And we're kind of skeptical as we're doing it because we're forced to think hard. It's not in our regular way of looking at things. So when I'm pitching something, I'm thinking, how can I keep this so that they're intuitively accepting everything I do? I don't want to put them in a place where they have to go contrary. So if I made some controversial statement, like, you know, I've got this idea for a horror film because we know that um, uh, everybody uh, secretly uh, always wants to do terrible things to the people around them. And somebody says, wait a minute, I never want to do terrible things to people around me. The minute I've got them at that point, I've lost them. And I have to now find instances and then they're going to negate them and we're arguing instead of finding something they're going to agree with right away and say, you know, most of us like, you know, the easy way out when things are really pleasant. And so we make decisions like, yeah, I do that. Yeah. And 
then they're cruising along with me and I've got a better chance. The minute I make them skeptical, I've got a really tough mountain to climb. Right. The, the fellow who wrote this book, Daniel Kahneman, is a Princeton psychologist, psychology professor who won the Nobel Prize for Economics. It's a brilliant book. And I get no royalties from it, which hurts me. But no, I, it's already I, a big but I, but I praise it anyway, thinking no, fast and slow. Book. It's a great book. But it, it just makes that really good point that anything that you're saying to somebody that seems like it's within the, their realm of possibility that they can accept without arguing you've got an easier sell than if you're stopping and saying, well, imagine this. I can't see that ever happening. I just want to come back to something you said. You said they'll bury you if you don't... Um, can you do, can you what go I mean into what is that, means? that that what what a lot of people don't want to see I can't say all people who are experienced is an inexperienced person especially a young person in their early 20s coming in and doing something that's above their skill level they know what you don't know because they've been doing it even junior executives who have a very short lifespan know that and you always want to dial up you always want to bring somebody with you who knows more than you do and can believe in you and help you those are also great partnerships um uh, a 20 i'll give you an example uh, i i also talked told peter this story this morning i had a student two years ago I, was, I also told him that I'm going to look like the hero of this. I'm really not. This is just my job. He's I think the hero in all his stories. I, I, somebody, <laughs> somebody has to make me the hero somewhere. I'm the villain everywhere else. You can say, how are you? Uh, I that's true. Start how are you? And people wings? say, sorry, no. busy today. Um, I think that the, the best example of this is I had a student two years ago who was the best joke writer. I... 21 years old and had done a lot of improv but very young and she could work on which is just what you want in a room she could work on other people's scripts and go you know this would be a great joke and they would all come from character and conflict and she said to me in the beginning of the year because it was a two semester course she said to me I'm going to come out of here at 22 and I'm going right onto a television series as a writer and I said to her I hope not and um, and she got really mad at me, and I said, A, you won't be ready. B, they'll eat you alive. And C, they'll resent you. <laughs> and so what you need to do is pay your dues. And then I found this, or she found this program that um, Second City in Chicago had started a grad program in Harold Ramis's name, in his memory. And she applied, and she got in, and she's just graduated in May, I think, or she has maybe six months to go. She's got one more semester. And she is like a different kid because she took her time. You don't want to put your, so I guess to go back to your question is, you don't want to put yourself in a position where you will get killed because they will kill you. They have so many people to see and they're looking for things that they can sell. It's still a business, no matter what it's on. You know, even PBS, people go, oh, you know, British television, PBS, it's so high quality. It is, but it's, it's government supported on the BBC. So, you know, we'll see things like The Crown and things like that, that, you know, or Downton Abbey that we can't, you know, we have, we rarely see here, except now we're seeing it on Netflix. So I just think it's always a good idea to dial up. Don't try to be, when you're young, don't 
go in and pretend to know. Get people to mentor you, I think is the best advice I've ever been given. And it's the best advice I could give is, and take your time because you, you want to be in it for the long haul. You don't want to have like a gold strike and be done by the time you're 25. This girl, if she'd done what she was had in her head, she would have been finished at 25. I think, you know, uh, how many, how many, uh, if you look at Orson Welles' career, his later career, even though he made some great movies, he didn't have the career he had at 26. He's too young, but he was a genius, so that doesn't really count. But I think there's a lot of social pressure, and I know for, yeah. for Generation Xers like myself it existed, but now I see it for millennials right. and Gen Z, this not even just like the 30 under 30 group yeah. of people that, and, it's and all nuts. It, it, I mean, but the, think about, it. and then there's now probably 25, oh. but we see younger and younger people. What I tell my students achieving is great things. get into the business in any job you can get into, pay your dues and don't say, Oh, within a year, I've got to be in a writer's room as an assistant because nine chances out of 10, it's not going to happen. If the lucky chance that it happens, great for you. And then bring your friends along because really what we tell particularly grad students on the first day of grad school is look right and look left because that's not just your posse. Those are the people who are going to hire you later, you know. Um, but LMU is not like other film schools. It's, it's not competitive. It's more collaborative. So, I, you know, I know USC is very competitive and I think that's too bad because collaborative environment is always better to nurture other people while you're trying to get what you want means that you'll always have people you're working with most of my seniors come out and if they're if they haven't changed their mind about writing they work they're all this this crop of seniors that just graduated in may they're all working in the business but we'll want to edit the bad stuff about usc out of there Nah, keep it in. No. Well, we can't, we, can't, grad. We, we can't ask this, though. No, no schools mentioned, but how can one tell a collaborative environment versus competitive? Because sometimes competitive mm -hmm. can mask as collaborative. And then once well, you've been around a little bit, you start to see, Do no. people care well, about not just their own work, but other people's work? Are they involved? Do they work on other people's work? Uh I think that I think that's a big tell. And what are the teachers like? What are the what 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 are your bosses like? Now, the difference between school and a job is, hey, if your boss is an asshole, there's not much you can do about that except quit. So you're gonna and it's good for you to work for assholes, I think, because you will learn, especially early on, because you will learn how to deal with difficult people, oh, which yeah. is part of life, right? So unfortunately, look, I have to work with Peter every day. I mean. No, but you've, you've asked a really nuanced question. Oh, good. Oh, I'm which nuanced. is another pedag pedagogical oh, term, nuanced. Be because I don't, I don't, you're making it sound like it's binary. Are you collaborative? We don't know the word binary, Peter. Zero, zero, one, one. No, okay. Oh, she's thinking mathematically. <laughs> he means it's not one or the other. It's, I'll okay. get, I'll get it's my not... answer in. I know okay, right, I will. Right. I doubt it. I'm patient, just like Adam. <laughs> if, you start speaking, if you start speaking English, and, perhaps. But... And so <laughs> the fact is, um, in any environment, the, the difference, the places where you find that it's competitive you'll find people being very evaluative. 
particularly negatively evaluated. That's not a good idea because that wouldn't work because. And a lot of that in my but, classes. Though. But um, good ideas are always recognized. So it's always competitive because if you have the best ideas, you're recognized as the best. Like uh, LMU is, is, works really hard to be a supportive environment, yet Jeffrey said, here is a student who clearly was head and shoulder above everybody else. You're going to get noticed by the quality of your ideas, so it's competitive to the extent that you could, you could stratify who are the best or the worst writers, whether you're, you know, whether you're supportive or competitive. Mm -hmm. But the difference is the, the lumps you take along the way. Yeah. In other words, some people, again, come with this idea of, look, it's an aggressive marketplace. We want to prepare you for it. So if your ideas suck, we're going to let you know it because then you won't have so many sucky ideas later yeah, uh, the only thing, as opposed yeah. to other places. I mean, I know, for example, people come to me all the time with ideas saying, you know, can you give me notes? Here's my script. Here's... And what I found is... charge <clears throat> for that, I think. What I find is I, I almost never give criticisms. What I do is I ask questions. And so if something doesn't work for me, I don't say that doesn't work or that's no good. I say, have you thought about this? Or, mm. or why is it work to have this be that? Is there another way to do that? So it's never coming out as a put down because people get very defensive when you put their stuff down. And I don't want them either. And I don't want to dampen their, you know, um, their enthusiasm. And at the same point, I don't think it's helpful. We're asking them thought-provoking questions that they can answer. Eventually, if they're smart enough, they realize it's a criticism or it's a flaw, but it's not negative. It makes them think, how do I solve a problem? So I'd like to recast it as problem solving. You know, I think it helps to realize that, believe it or not, Aaron Sorkin has written some pretty crummy scripts, and he would probably be the first to say so. So, you know, even the best people are not at their... Well, there's a famous uh, mom, uh, W. Somerset mom, saying that only uh, mediocre writers are at their best all the time. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, think, I think that what I try to do in class, and, you know, probably some of this is influenced by Peter, that it really hurts to have to compliment him. Physically you can see the pain me. on his face. Um, is... But you don't I, see me kicking would, his ankle. It would never occur to me to say to any student, and I haven't, I haven't had the experience of a student with zero talent. I've never had that. Because um, it's really hard to get into LMU now. And, and um, we are number eight out of ten. We're in the top ten film schools now. So, haha, uh -huh. plug for LMU. Um, but um, even someone who was really untalented... I would probably do what Peter just said. I would probably say, do you really want to write? But I would never say you have no talent for writing because a lot of people said that to me. They didn't say it in those words, but a lot of people discouraged me. And I think discouraging someone is really awful. It's an awful thing to do because you never know what someone will do later. But, but, if let, you, me, if, but let me if, add ooh, a little. Hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> I almost got a word Stay, in. stay. <laughs> I wasn't finished my speech. I was going to say something nice about you. If you had told me uh, 10 years ago when I met Peter that he was going to write a novel, I would have said, no, nah, Peter will never write a novel. That's something Peter doesn't do. He, 
not only written a novel, he's really working hard on it. Now you can interrupt me. Go ahead. Notice he didn't say it's really good. He said he's really working I, it's hard. It's getting there. No, no, no. That, that, that <laughs> is is that the manual? Or no, that's... <laughs> no, he's oh, writing okay, a, no. a historical oh. novel, which, by the way, is the hardest genre there is. Oh, right. About, yeah. Mm -hmm. we met, we talked, but yeah. just, you know, even when you're asking you questions, that. I think you have to be really careful because questions can be very evaluative. Sure. Um, you know, why did you decide to wear that dress today? You know, it's very a, pretty. It's hot. The, the point yeah. is, that's that's a question. But oh it's yeah, really I've an had those questions. It's yep. an evaluation. Sure, sure. And so that's a even, question. So even asking questions, even asking <laughs> questions like you know, why do you want to be writing? You have to be very careful because that could be a very discouraging question. Right. Well, I have a, and, an evaluative question that I would like to ask, okay. and that would be: Do you think that a writer that has talent but no connections has an easier time getting in the business? versus a writer that has not as much talent, but connections. Uh, that's, a, uh, that's a trick question. Because <laughs> no, it's, no, it's not because about it's, okay. Well, because it, it really depends on, it just depends on the, the ratios of both. Yeah, that's the scientific uh, but, but I But I have to tell you, uh, contacts, oh, it's really big. You know, there are an awful lot of people who will never, never, never get noticed. No matter how good they are, because their true. work will just never get out of that bottle. That's true. And um, knowing people, you know, big advantage. But you know, we were talking about this before today that you know the the importance of the N word in Hollywood. That networking is more important than anything. It's the more people you can work with, uh, the more people you can collaborate with. Um, it just when when there's a position open in a room. You're a lot more likely to call friends, you know, than just say, hey, we got an open spot here, come in and audition. So more work gets given to people who know people right. than any other way. Right. Right. I like what you said about the evaluative questions, though, because I think we've all had that happen to us in one form or another yeah, where somebody's asking a question. A that, yeah. Uh, yeah, and then they're like, I'm just asking a question, but it's the Not intention really. behind well, I, the question. I, I had a clinical yeah. supervisor who, who would really get down to me saying, don't make a statement through a question. I'm almost afraid to... to well, no, it's just, <laughs> you know, again, uh -huh. if I said, you know, we we'll uh -huh. use the same question again, you know, um, why, why did you choose to wear that dress today? Um, right. That's like saying, you know, that's not really an appropriate dress to oh, wear. Oh, I can tell the intention, but, yeah. Uh -huh. And so... <laughs> Again, it's like yeah. you have to be careful with, even when you're saying, why does your character, you know, why did he choose to be a cowboy? You know, it's oh. like I'm saying that you shouldn't have had him be a cowboy. Yeah, I can and see so it in your very, face and so the intonation. Who are possibly and, paying for it, I think that changes that. But I mean, I think, I think the important thing is when you're asking questions to give them the appearance of wanting information. Rather than a judgment. very different than giving an evaluation. Right. Interesting. And surprisingly, people don't really like being evaluated negatively that much. Yeah, yeah that is surprising. No matter how much practice they have. That is an odd thing, isn't it? <laughs> how odd. Do TV writers use structure when writing out episodes and a season? Okay. I, I think I answered this <laughs> earlier when I was talking about how rooms work. Um, and this is really comes up in the book a lot. Um, 
I have yet, to, this is happening more and more on dra drama shows, by the way, never had rooms up until not that long ago. The drama room is based on the comedy room and the comedy room is based on the Sid Caesar show, show of shows from 1956 or seven, 67 like years old or whatever. Someone didn't like my headline for that ad. I've never forgotten that. He's very <laughs> valuable with, with me, by the way. Um, yeah, but I'm straight up with it. You're straight up with it, which doesn't make it hurt any less when you've spent Again, we're back to Italian something. hand gestures. Um, <laughs> so, so the... Uh, I'm sorry, could you ask the question again? Oh, sure, that? sure. Um, do TV writers use structure when writing out episodes okay. and a season? As episodes don't work the same way as pilots. So let's say you're on the second year of Modern Family or the sixth year of Modern Family. The staff's already had changeovers. People have left, gotten their own deals, their own shows. First thing you're going to get is a Bible. And the Bible, the show Bible, is every show, every episode that's ever been done since the show started. Then... They're gonna, then you're gonna sit in a room for 12 hours a day minimum, and you're gonna break story. You're gonna pitch and break stories. Then someone, then from the, from the break, the break is really an outline. Then someone is gonna go out, probably an assistant, and, or, and, and type up the outline from the break. Then they're gonna come back in, they're gonna, they're gonna go over the outline, then somebody is gonna go out, do a pass, a draft, Come back in, they'll table that, rewrite it as a group. So on television, episodic TV, yes, the showrunners design the arc of the show and have the say on what's going to happen. But there's a lot of work that goes on in the room that has absolutely, you know, it's, it's lots of things going on at once. But it's a particularly good question because it's evolving. Ooh, you suck up, you. Be Okay. <laughs> I shouldn't make obscene gestures, I know, but... Um, we can talk about the book Can later, you see me so. if I hit him in the back of the head from here? <laughs> um, but um, because it's evolving right now. And again, it used to be every character has to remain the same even though that, yeah. that episode is changing. So again, as Jeffrey said before, you can miss 10 episodes and you can still follow along with the sitcom where now it's becoming more episodic. Right. And you kind of have to keep up or all of a sudden, how do we get here? All this has changed. So what you're asking is good only because it's evolving so much that we're seeing a yeah, shift. Right. But the part of the question about structure is, it, it, and, you know, there might be shows that do it a different way, but, uh, but, I, but I can't see it not coming out of character and conflict first. Mm -hmm. So I know, for example, the most famous story, I don't think it made it into the book, but 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 um, Phil Rosenthal's story about how they got the uh, how you know how did he get the idea for the pilot, which is that he gave his parents in real life Fruit of the Month Club, and his mother had a raging like what what we're we're too you think we're too old to go out and get our own fruit you know <laughs> and he used that as the part of the pilot episode that he gave and he gave that to Doris Roberts and Peter Boyle as their problem with Ray and and so he had the story idea and you could see immediate conflict and um, the great thing about Raymond was that the stories were always small with big stakes. 
So the one another famous episode was somebody in the room said, um, I, I'm having a fight with my wife because we came back from vacation and the suitcase is on the landing. And all the men in the room said, don't touch it. Make her go upstairs. And, all, and the women in the room said, go up and unload the suitcase for her. And that seems like a really tiny story, but it's, it's really about marriage, right? So they start with that. And then they start, because they know the show, they know the characters, they know what they do, what they wouldn't do, which you don't know in a pilot. And, and so they can say, well, Ray, would, you know, Deborah would never say that. Because uh, basically she loves Ray, but she thinks he's a dope. But so, also what Jeffrey's saying goes back to when we were developing your pilot about this notion of plausibility and add to it the notion of identification. That people really want to see stuff that feels real to them. Right. That even though I might never have been put in this situation, I know how I would act if I was in that situation. But, yeah, and exactly. I'll, That's exactly. I'll tell you what I, I think is almost an interesting story. Um, I had a friend who got stuck on a screenplay. And we, we sat down in this very room and I took a psych history of his character. And by the time he left, he said, wow, it's like whatever happens to my character now, I know exactly how he'll respond. And he said the rest of the screenplay was just so easy because he knew his character so well. And I just asked the questions. He filled in all the answers, but he'd never thought about those issues before. And even though you know he's dealing with how would he react in this business situation here, just understanding which lunch table he sat in in That's high school became really important in terms of developing his character. Yeah, it, it's kind of like what I was taught by the guys in my dad's generation. You know, even if you never put it in the script, knowing it helps you. And you know, ninety percent in that of that psychic bio, I'm, I'm, you know, that psych eval probably didn't make it into the oh, script. No, but nothing. knowing it makes you more comfortable and gives you more. The more you know, the more you can write. It's that simple. The, the other sort of addendum I would put on this, see, I used an academic addendum. word. Addendum. Um, uh, is, is or a legal that, term. Legal, <laughs> spiegel. I wouldn't know the difference between academic and legal. That's a Jewish lawyer term. So the other thing I would say about that is that the, the great thing for some people about working in a room is not only do they know what they're good at, they learn to get good at other things. So... There's another position in the room that people don't talk about much, which is the line editor, somebody who's really good at going line for line and going, we could do a better job on that dialogue. That dialogue is not funny or it's not. And then the joke writer can come up with. So it's really a bolt. I think that's the way when, Elliot Shulman described it in the book. It's, when, it's when, when we interviewed Leonard Stern, he showed us a book he'd written called A Martian Wouldn't Say That. Yeah, my dad's in it. And again, it's this <laughs> idea that you know these characters so well that when you hear a line, you just say, no, no, she would never say that. Right, right. Who and knows that, what that a Martian it, would say, right? But, that was but, the that, but when you've written a book about a Martian, you start knowing the way he would say things that wouldn't. Yeah. These people in the room know the characters so well that everything comes through. You feel their language and... And that's the other thing, the corollary to what Peter was saying earlier. Corollary. Another nice word is... Yeah, it doesn't, matter who, you, it's a slow it doesn't matter who you know 
on the in the room and how close friends you are if you don't get the show and you haven't studied it you're not going to last that that you know it's not a most showrunners phil is an exception i think bob meyer is an exception where they will bring people along but these days there's so much at stake and there's so many shows they don't have time to teach people now my two former students who are on who are on this new Hispanic version that Norman Lear is there every day of one day at a time, 93 and still mind totally intact and he's there. But she is mentoring these two young writers and I think it's great. You know, she's in her mid forties and she's mentoring these two young writers and they're very fortunate. That doesn't always happen. And um, so they've, they've, and when I talk to them, which is frequently, they'll say, we don't mind that we're getting less money to work on Netflix because we're getting it. It's like going to grad school, you know? And but it also says something it. about your attitude as a writer if you haven't studied the characters enough so that you would suggest something that's out of character, so you would say right. something that's out of character. Yeah. And a lot of people, like <laughs> someone once told me uh, many years ago that I should write a... A honeymooners spec. This is still when they were looking at specs. Now they want to see pilots first, and then maybe like you know for samples. Um, that I should write a honeymooners as if it was like 2005. I think it was someone p- pitched that, and I said, no, I'm not <laughs> going to do that because nobody could write those shows. Nobody knows the honeymooners anymore, and also. It's a the honeymooners dates a little because you know he was always with hey, the. You fist can't up say and, you know to the moon, Alice. Yeah, that was right. your spousal the thing abuser. I wanted to say uh, just to go back for a second to the to the business of um, the. Uh, oh, I'm blanking on the word again. Marshmallow. Like best West French franchise. franchise. Right. Why am I blanking on that? <laughs> I don't know. Franchise is Lucy had a franchise that people you have to really study the show to know, and that was every week. She got into trouble because she tried to do something Desi didn't want her to do. It was never just going shopping or they, they stomped, she and right. Ethel stomped grapes or, or she went to work because she wanted so badly to be an actress and she went to work, the, the Veggie Vita, you know, is the best one they ever did. And it was always hoisting herself on her own batard, trying to get attention. But there always had to be that third object. That makes anything dramatic. If it's just characters in a room talking, we're not going to follow you. And, 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 and by the way, conflict and argument are not the same thing. I could start an argument with your wife right now about her dress. Uh, and uh, sorry, Peter, I stole that from you. That's not conflict. And if she argues back, conflict is when something really important is at stake, even if it's a small thing, like I said, with the suitcase. And anybody can anybody can write an argument. It's like Neil Simon. My favorite Neil Simon quote is he said, everybody thinks they can write a play. You just write down what happened. But the real art is taking from all the moments of your life of of taking disparate things and bringing them together. But what Jeffrey said here is really important. Oh, that, well, con- get that again and repeat. Con- <laughs> when he's off his meds, he's, he's like... You know, this. when I'm off my meds, it's dangerous day. He needs a little Adam. Plus, heat him. stroke doesn't help. Um, but yes, sir. The, the, we define... No, go com- back to what I said is really important. <laughs> competition is defined as having a scarcity of resources. So it's, that's really what Jeffrey's saying is the essence of conflict, that you're trying to get something 
and somebody else wants it and you're battling over it. So just disagreeing is not conflict. And I would also quote a wonderful writer who, Bill Boyers, I think was his name. He wrote mostly comedic westerns. He wrote those James Garner movies that were so great. I've forgotten his last name. But he wrote like, you know, support your local sheriff, support your local gunfighter. So he was an action comedic writer. And he said, life, I'm sure other people have said it too, but he said, drama is life with all the boring parts cut out. Oh, it's kind of like the John Lennon, Yeah, you know, exactly. life is what happens while you're making yeah, it. Elmore Leonard right. said the same thing. Yeah. He said, Elmore. I, Elmore Leonard said, I, I don't write the parts that people don't like to read. Right. <laughs> I said it really nicely. I played hooky from school today. This is a good day for me. Oh, you did? Well, you, you... I don't teach on Tuesday, so... It's... Oh, okay. Oh, perfect. Okay. According to his students. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> According to my students, I don't teach any day. Exactly. <laughs> I'm hoping this is a, a non-evaluative question. Just, <laughs> I, I, I'm loving these terms, by the way. This yeah, these are all Peter. I have no clue what he's... I don't have any more clue than you do what the hell he's talking about. <laughs> How does a writer step on their own laughs? Peter, you're the comedy maven, the joke maven. Well, um, the easiest way to do that is with poor editing. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, let me tell you a joke. <clears throat> Man's dog dies, so he takes it to a Protestant minister and says, <clears throat> would you permit me to bury my dog here on the, uh, the grounds of the church? He says, no, that's, that, that's terrible, that's blasphemous. So he takes the, the carcass down to the local rabbi and says, could we bury him on the grounds of the synagogue? No, that's heresy, get out of here. Takes him down to a Catholic priest, could I bury my dog here? No, absolutely not. Gosh, that's too bad. I was going to donate $40,000 to any place that would let me bury the dog. He says, oh, well, why didn't you tell me the dog was Catholic? Okay, bad joke, but that's not the point. So now, let's say I gave you the same punch, but I said, oh, the dog was Catholic. Why didn't you tell me sooner? Now, that sounds like the same thing, doesn't it? Sure. But it's not, because what's the reveal? What's the key word in that joke? Why didn't you tell me the dog was Catholic? And as soon as you hear that, you laugh. But if I say, oh, the dog was Catholic, why didn't you tell me sooner? That part's not funny. But when you have the urge to laugh at Catholic, I've stopped you because you think, oh, there's a punch, but it's something even better coming. But I've screwed myself because I didn't give you a chance. And I went on thinking, making you think there's something better to hold off, and now the moment's gone. So it's almost, it could, it's the rewording it's it's stepping on the reveal and not giving them time to laugh appropriately. And I think that lesson is true in... in and you can change the order of the religions. Yeah. I think that's true in, in, in the end of <laughs> scenes, too. I mean, all scenes need to have a button. And in comedy, it very often is a comedic button, but it's not always a comedic button. But it, the scene needs to be buttoned up, just like a joke needs to be buttoned up. Yeah. Um, and so if you go past it, without including anything the good, will feel then you stepped, on, you stepped on the moment. And you will make the audience unconsciously annoyed at you. and Or, at the very least, they won't get the joke. Well, or they won't have responded when you want them to because you've made them think there was something coming when there wasn't. Mm -hmm. So you've led them on, in a way. And it's called stepping on your laps, okay. exactly as you yeah. said it. That was an easy one. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> and we're back. <laughs> so when did the interesting questions start? Oh, right now, actually. This is, but this one's a little bit leading. And this one is, why are so many screenwriters opposed to structure? I, I didn't know they were. My experience is that, <laughs> my experience is that uh, there are there are two groups of screenwriters now. It used to be, I mean, you probably remember in the 90s and the early 2000s, there was the Chris Vogler book, which is pretty good, actually, and then the Truby book, and who's the guy that charges almost as much as the S seminars? I'm not going to mention his name. There used to be like, this is how you write a screenplay. And I think that particularly in TV screenplays and teleplays, that's, that's, changing. I would like it. Again, to me, structure will automatically, structure is the easiest thing to learn. That's, that's the craft of, that's not even to me the craft of it. I could basically teach anybody how to structure a screenplay. Um, and I'm not, and I'm lucky to have Peter because he's really, I'm not joking around now, he's really good at structure. But I believe stru structure comes out of character and conflict. So I have not run up against a lot of writers who are opposed to that. I just think a what some teachers do is they teach structure before they'll teach character and conflict, which is a big mistake. Mm -hmm. Because it'll be an... I've read things that are beautifully structured and empty. There's software now you can get to structure your screenplay. Mariner makes yeah. a whole bunch of uh, software programs. That's easy. I can teach but, you that yeah. formatting, structuring in a week. But I hadn't heard what, you, what you're hearing. Are you hearing that a lot of people are opposed to structure? It was a question. I oh. wanted to see what your answer would well, be. Well, for God's so. sakes, Karen, I'm so disappointed. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's a rumor, but I was just throwing it out there. No, I, it's there, funny because I hear of... the opposite. I hear people fall back on structure. They're you know, not so much in TV, I guess. There are a bunch of really funny videos on YouTube of fake pitches. Have you seen oh, those? No. And they're brilliant. They're hysterical. There's, there's a wonderful one um, on. Well, they're pitching uh, Citizen Kane. Citizen hysterical. Kane. Hysterical. Gone with the Wind. But there's. I'm trying to think of the one that I really love because we're talking about structure here Pulp Fiction. Oh. And they're <laughs> yeah. explaining. You know, th these these pages are all out of order. <laughs> so don't worry. <laughs> we made the story flow in a logical sequence now. And <laughs> So, I mean, I think, again, like many other areas, the, the concept of structure is evolving also. And, but that started a long time ago. That probably started in the 60s with the new French novel and stuff, where all of a sudden you don't know if you're seeing a sequence or you're seeing a composite or if you're, how, which part is fantasy in somebody's head and which part is real. And so the whole notion of structure has been evolving a lot. So things aren't necessarily as linear as, as they were. People are taking a lot bigger liberties that way, yeah. which is a good thing. I think you have to write the way that, now I'm not talking about being in a room, then you've got to observe the rules that the showrunner lays out. But if you're writing something of your own, and if, for example, I always tell students and I tell myself that if you are awakened at three o'clock in the morning and a scene comes to you, get up and write it down and don't worry about where it goes in the structure. Because if you wait, you might still be able to write the scene, but it won't have the power and the passion you felt. It woke you up for a reason. 
And a lot of writers, particularly students, are afraid to do that because they've had pounded into their head that you must write everything in order. And that's the part that makes me crazy, the writing things in order. How can, you know, there's a famous quote, how can, I forget who said it, I'm, I'm blanking on everything today, but I do know franchise now, I'm not gonna forget that. <laughs> so, uh, that um, how do I know what I think till I see what I say? Oh, and, wow. And that's really that's powerful. <laughs> that powerful? Is this what Adam has got above his desk? Yeah, isn't that good? <laughs> so you got a new quality for him. I mean, I think that a lot of people are afraid to just dive into the, I am, it's hard, to just dive into that darkness and, and let it be bad and find the structure, but make sure that you find it from the characters, because otherwise it'll be empty. Do you find certain students or people that you've worked with are okay going to those places and others are really, whether it's their upbringing, are very scared? Nobody's okay with no it. No one's okay? You have okay? to get them to be okay with it. And what I did in my, I'm teaching... I, I created, I co-created a course a couple of years ago, a remade course for freshmen. And it was the first day of class, a week, it'll be a week tomorrow. And I said to everybody in the room, get ready to embrace shit. Uh-oh, are you going to have to erase that? <laughs> no, we'll... Okay, so it's the Anne Lamott dictum from Bird by Bird. Yes. Bird, okay. You have an obligation to be shitty. Oh, okay. You know, um, which um, you should, you can almost see the 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 weight come off their shoulder. It's the most, it's the closest I feel to being like a therapist. Says I'm releasing them from the need to be good, and they can write because then I say, because you're going to be anyway. You're 18 years old. How good are you going to be? And I don't give you a good grade for being good. And then they go. Wait a minute, if we try to be good, you're not going to grade us better than people who try to be bad? Exactly. <laughs> because I don't care. I'm, I'm interested in the process, not the product. You're 18. doesn't matter how good it is. It's still going to suck. <laughs> you know? That word we can't use. I'm sorry. Sorry. 18? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, this is a very big thing with me. This... This need people have, and I think it's because I am, and I'll always be a recovering perfectionist, that, mm. that um, it's another thing the partnership has given me, because he forces me to put it down. And you know, if I, if, I had, if I had my druthers, not so much anymore, but it used to be that it would just take forever because I didn't want to be bad. Yeah, the, so P, I, the P word is a synonym for scared. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, oh, I see. Right, right. Uh-huh. I'm afraid it'll suck. And if you tell students at the beginning, it's okay to suck. It's okay to be bad. You, it's like Peter said earlier, then you have something that's on paper. You can play with it forever. But if you don't put it down, you got nothing. Wait, you were talking uh, this morning about a guy who's been working for five years on a screenplay. Five, ten. Ten. Okay. Five I could accept. You know, it's not like he's writing the great American novel. He's writing a screenplay. Wow. Come on. Really? <laughs> well, unless he's so lost in the process because... Then uh, he should be writing three screenplays, not one. That's Come on, true. Double space, <laughs> double space, 12 pages a year. You get a little more output than that. I don't know. I, I, think, I think that it is just fear. You know, and older people can have fear too. Sure, because then, yeah, I think it's it's okay to be young and to fail yeah. and make mistakes, the, but older people, uh, we have to... The worst days of my life are the days that I finish a play or I finish something and I... My first reader is always my wife because she's an actress and 
She'll say nice things and then she'll say, so basically what you're asking me to do is put marbles in my mouth to say these lines, you know? <laughs> and, it's, and after I get over being hurt and thinking about divorce court and all of those things, uh, I, I, I realize, you know, she's right. Again, we're writing for actors. We're not writing, yes, producers have to read it, executives have to read it, but you're gonna be replaced really fast if you can't write dialogue. Said Claude Rains in Casablanca says to uh, to Bogart, he says, "What what brought you to Casablanca?" And Bogart says, "The waters." And uh, and <laughs> Claude Rains says, "It's a desert." And Bogart says something like, "I was mistaken. I was misinformed. I was misinformed." <laughs> Which is great dialogue. Just great dialogue. Music. It's music. You know, which is the difference between speak, speak like we're doing here and an interesting dialogue. An interesting dialogue. But you said earlier that when you're right, you're, excuse me. <laughs> you said earlier when your wife reads your first draft or second draft that, you know, she's an actress. So in your essentially writing for actors, how does a writer write for what they think people will say versus what actors? Oh, just years of practice. Can you give and, and listening to readings, I find readings incredibly valuable. Workshopping, uh, and films and TV should be done the same way. Actors are not shy about telling you what doesn't work for them. Just like singers are not shy about telling a songwriter, hey, you know, when I land on that, it doesn't go, the words don't go with the notes. Um, well, and but a, sort of a simple answer to your question, though, is read your dialogue aloud. Yes, very good point. And, I don't do you it, can, but I you can think start. You start saying, "Whoa, that that's not <laughs> coming off my tongue very easily." Uh, I don't think I want to ask somebody to say that. You know, when composers compose, and you're writing for an orchestra, and you don't know how to play the French horn, and you can't play the oboe, and quite often after it's done, you have people play through the parts, and they say, "That's unplayable. You can't finger it that way," and they have to go back and they have to change their parts because they're not writing for that instrument. The other thing about drama in any form is what actions are playable what, and they're not playable. So what I've learned in the course of my writing life and of watching other people's work is, is crying, the, the woman cries. That's not a playable, you have to be more descriptive about it. What is she doing when she's crying? And that, the actor's always gonna find something else to do, something better, but you gotta give them a hint. You know, actors hate two things more than anything. One, to be told how to say a line, and two, blocking. Because blocking is the, it's blocking is like structure. It's the easiest thing in the world to do. If all you do as a director is block, you're not much of a director. Actors like directors who, like, I'm sure that's why they love Tom as a director, because he's also been an actor. Mm -hmm. And so he knows how actors think, you know. This and is so what I, what, but I think it's really just experience and writing a lot and, and reading it aloud and, and getting other people to read it. One, tr there are tricks that you can use in stage dialogue. One is people don't typically talk. People typically don't, you know, in real life, people don't say, you may not go there. You cannot go. You can right away hear that that sounds. But, you know, if you think about it, um, if you're sitting in a room with an actor, they're noticing things about people you're not noticing. 
and they're looking for mannerisms, they're looking for expressions, what are they doing with their hands, um, is everything coming out monotone, or is the pitch going up, or is it going down, does it go faster, does it go slower, they're listening for all these things, and they're saying, what differentiates this Texan from this New Yorker, and how are they sounding so different? And why is this story working and this one isn't? Why am I captivated in listening to this person? And Why does this person sound shallow? So if they ever have to sound shallow, then they know, well, if I'm kind of looking to the side like this and I'm kind of talking out of the side of my mouth and oh, what words would I be saying then, they're noticing. And good dialogue writers also have really good ears and they're listening for the way people speak and, and they remember those sorts of things. I, I'm a big believer in... Writer, writers, writers. Who is that? Like a character that got cut out of Fiddler on the Roof. What is that? Uh, I'm a big believer in in writers' notebooks. I've been keeping them since I was very young, and I don't mean diaries. I don't mean today. I went to Peter Desper's house and he made fun of me all day and was. Because that be the same him. thing every time he comes here. I, I don't need to write that down because I'm going to remember it. But I mean, like, not. Sometimes I'll go months without putting anything in. But Lydia Davis, who's a wonderful writer, said that what she likes about keeping a notebook, and I think this is really valuable advice, is, is you're never really starting with a blank page because you can always go to the notebook and find something you wrote and play with it. And, and if you're blocked on one thing, you go over there and you, you, work, you work on that. And maybe it doesn't go anywhere, but maybe it does. And that's another thing that writers have a hard time coming to terms with that is sort of another corollary to the fear but, is, I want to use that word a lot before I forget it. But, Soon, oh, I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say that you have to get used to things going into a corner and maybe you have to leave it alone and go to something else. This goes back to what Peter was saying about the guy that was working on one script for 10 years. That's crazy. Because it, even if it wasn't a script, it's crazy. You want to work on different things because different days may call you to something. and You're not going to get anything done if you just work on one thing. But, but this goes back again to also to the idea of observation. That people, people think, for example, that objectivity in the world exists. But it doesn't. If, if three people walk into this room, would they all see the same thing? It's see chairs, rug, desk? No. If an interior designer was to walk in this room, they would get nauseous. If a carpenter came in, they'd be looking at uh, the shelves plumb. If a psychologist came in, they'd be looking at the titles of the books. And if a chiropractor came in, they'd be looking at our posture and saying, I see money coming my way, <laughs> slouching. But the, the eye doesn't tell the brain what it sees, the brain tells the eyes what to look for. And so, Interesting. I didn't know that. and so actors are constantly looking at when they're seeing any extreme in behavior, they're paying attention to the littlest things. Right. You know, it's not just that his voice raises, but what's he doing with his hands while he's doing it? How has his posture changed? Because he's going to use that. And so again, the same thing, good writers, when they hear people talk, they're saying, did that person get tongue-tied when she got really angry? Or did this whole slew of stuff just come rolling off the tongue? And does this sound like something she said a lot of times? Or is this something that, you know, is she saying it legato or staccato? 
You know, it's like, I'm so angry at you, I could just bust. Or is it, I'm so angry at you, I could just bust. And you know, all these things, they're listening for these things saying, wow, listen how the emotion's coming out in everyday people doing stuff. That's the way I want to write the dialogue. So it's you look at what you're interested in. And if you're a good dialogue writer, you don't just think of what words they're going to say. It's what have I seen people do when they're trying to demonstrate that when they're demonstrating that emotion? How do the words come out? Yeah, we saw an interesting interaction of somebody steal someone's parking space. And the guy handled it pretty well. He was waiting patiently, but he said something to the woman. But the woman was like, you know, didn't give him the bird, but she basically told him where to go. Then she turned around. So just watching that whole interaction was fascinating. I mean, I, it was like a TV show. I couldn't believe that she was a real character. But, but again, a, a great writer would have listened to every word and how they got strung together. And how did, how did she express, what words did she, did she use? She said, what, sorry, you were too late. <laughs> but again. She cut him off and then said he was too late. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. And, and again, Sounds you like know, a New Yorker. but the whole idea of the body language, when she said, sorry, you're just too late, was it, you know, sorry, you were just too late? No. Or was no. it, sorry, you were just too late? You know, it's Pretty much, yeah. different. Mm -hmm. But I mean, all of those things matter. Right. Right. Subtext. And, and so again, it's, if you're interested in that, I mean, a lot of writers don't realize, you know, they're so interested in story and, you know, how, what am I going to do in act, you know, in act two to end it? And instead of thinking of how would this person express themselves in this situation to make me feel that I'm part of this scene so that I could put myself in their place and feel what they're doing through the words. I would just add that, that that is what drafting is for because in one draft you're going to be focused on the story and then maybe when you've got the story you're going to look at word choice in another draft and then you're going to look at the dialogue and you know really polish the dialogue. This is why you have to disabuse young writers of the notion that three drafts and they're done. I don't know, what draft do you want in your novel now? Oh my God. <laughs> no, but it's, I've yeah. encouraged that. We're way in the I, 20s. I don't, I, I, you know, again, if you took 10 years to write a novel, I totally <laughs> get that, right? Uh -huh. Because novels are the, that's so hard. They don't it's have a, a page count. Donna Tartt, who's an amazing writer, she writes one novel, she publishes a novel every 10 years and but she's working her fanny off. Obviously. You know, 500 pages and there's a lot. And That's how long your novel is? 500? Wow. I'm, and I'm cutting a lot. But the <laughs> thing the is, you again, he has an advantage because he's willing to put it down. It's not painful for him to put bad things on paper, which makes him really unlikable, in my opinion. Well, yeah. that's not the only reason. No, but I wasn't. Just one, I'm being polite. One dimension of my unlikability. <laughs> Did you see the little puppet up there? The little Freud puppet up there on the, the top of the bookshelf. Oh, bookshow. yes. Now you let you your patients it. hold it when they're feeling insecure. Oh, no, no, no. I go in there and say, <laughs> I go up there and say, why do you hate your... your... Whenever you're ready. ready. Oh, we're rolling, yeah. So I went to this evening once at the Paley Center. It was quite a number of years ago because Larry Gelbart has sadly been gone for a while creator of the TV show MASH and a billion plays. The book for Funny Thing happened on the way to the forum. He and Mel Brooks, who had first met on Sid Caesar's show of shows in the 50s, were doing an evening and a talk 
And then at the end of the talk, there was a Q&A, as there always is, and a guy got up and he said, can you illustrate the difference between a joke and wit? And Mel Brooks took a glass of water and poured it over his, his head, and he said, that's a joke. And there was a long pause, and the guy said, so, so what's wit? And Larry Gelbart said, wit is dry. <laughs> It's a great line. <laughs> Speaking of which. <laughs> <laughs> She's recovering. The structure of a joke versus the structure of a screenplay. Similar, different? Well, um, can I tamper with the question and sure. edit it a little? Please do. It's the way I'd like to see that question is... Um, looking at the structure of a joke, and then how do you work it into a screenplay. Okay. Because jokes jokes have to meet two criteria to work in a screenplay. They have to either advance a story, or they have to, and they have to totally come out of character. If they don't meet those two criteria, excise them. They're expendable. You don't want to keep them. So that's always the rule. And I've seen writers with tears in their eyes saying, this is so funny, I hate to let this go, but it's not coming out of character. It's not moving things along. I gotta, I gotta dump it. So you have to have those two elements in there. Is there a joke quota? I mean, all, all kidding aside, like do-, do There do, used to be. Okay. Yeah, but yeah. I don't think there is anymore. I mean, I hope there isn't. There's two shows on Netflix. One's called The Ranch. And I forget the the uh, other one. It just came on. It's with Kathy Bates, and it's about a woman who owns a pot store. And they're both like those sitcoms in the '80s, some of which I wrote for, uh, where it was like joke, 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 joke. Oh, look, you're wearing what was the one in the ranch that I just thought, oh, this is so old-fashioned, where. He's wearing Uggs. The, this guy who used to be a football player is wearing Uggs, and the parents are, everybody's making jokes about the Uggs. It has nothing to do with the story. They just are looking for jokes. They're shooting in front of a live audience. And someone told us this morning that those two shows are not doing that great on Netflix. Uh, and it doesn't surprise me. It's really old-fashioned. Um, there was a rule, three jokes a page, when I started, and that could be and lots of times the producer would give you the joke I, one joke i had to put in a script was oh look at barbie cantrell on a beach almost wearing that bikini having nothing to do with the story terrible joke El not even really a joke elliot showman told us a really nice story said i was working on maud and maud was a very sophisticated comedy where everything really jokes are very difficult to come by because the characters weren't very broad. And he said, we had our office right across the hall from the uh, all, in, was it, all in the Family. And he said, the characters there were so broad that you could always get a joke if you needed it. So he said, we'd be there till seven or eight every night, and at five o'clock, they all left. And they said, if they needed a joke, um, they would take Archie Bunker and they'd give him a malaprop. So he'd say, um, eat it, I think I got a hynia. I got to see a groinecologist. And you'd have the joke because he's just such an easy character to write jokes for. 
And if again, you know, I keep saying my, my favorite sitcom is still Big Bang, and those characters are so well drawn, and the characters have so many traits that are identifiable that there's always a joke when you need it. There's always something about one of the characters that's going to fit. So whether it's a short joke or an OCD joke or uh, you know, an autism joke or a foreign language joke, there's always something because the characters have so many traits that you can come out with jokes about. Anything to add? No, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not really a very good joke writer. I've never been. I, I, my humor comes out of... But he's a very good joke critic when we talk. I mean, jokes uh, have never been my strength. Um, uh, you know, characters, I've written them, and I've ri but they'll usually come out of what a character's doing, and so I wouldn't really consider them the kind of jokes that Peter's talking about. I, um, I love jokes. I don't like joke jokes, and I studied with, with, with Danny Simon, who said never set up a straight line to accommodate a punchline, and I... And that's what kind of annoyed me about the ranch because that's what it, they had all these wonderful actors in it, and instead of using them to develop character, they were just giving them joke after joke after joke, and it just seemed kind of old-fashioned to me. But it's kind of when you when you see I the punch coming, who can write it's good jokes. not a good joke. You know, there's an old saying in boxing: you never see the punch that knocks you out. That should work for jokes as well. But I think that. You know, again, to go back to where we started with this, with jokes versus wit, I think you know uh, one of my one of my biggest influences is Noel Coward. Noel Coward did not write jokes. Noel Coward wrote situations that were inherently funny. Two people who are on their second honeymoon who go out on their respective balconies in the south of France, and who do they run into? But their ex-spouses. And everybody has stolen that situation. Uh, Private Lives was the play. And, but at the time, it was kind of risque. And of course, what are they going to do? They're going to fall back in love and fight and break up and get married and break up and get married. And that was, the, that was the premise. But you can see that really witty stuff would come out of that. But very few jokes. I think he had... Uh, you know, he had jokes like, I'm going to butcher this, but it was like, uh, and because one of them had been on a trip, how was Egypt? Uh, very, very dry. You know, th that's not a joke. That's wit, <laughs> you know. Uh, and, and, and how were the plains of Spain? Very, very wet. You know, that kind of thing. That's not really joke writing. Peter's talking about constructed jokes. If you say, there is a, but what's nice about that, and I butchered it a little, but but the the nice thing in the Noel Coward example is there's a rhythm, just like in a joke, there's a setup and a payoff. You know, if you say very, very wet and you don't say very, very dry, people will unconsciously be waiting for it. And if they don't hear it, they'll be disappointed. They may not know why. One of the, one of the movies that works great for me is, is the first and the second Back to the Future because everything, by the way, this is what structure is. Oh, I'm glad I got a new question. May <laughs> oh, I? Great. Oh, please do. Yeah. I'm so... Well, and this comes a lot from my, my childhood and my training. My, my dad and his friends always said, all structure really is, is set up and pay off. Some things you set up and pay off quickly. Some things you set up halfway through a script and pay it off later. But if you set up something and don't pay it off, people are going to notice that the film or the play... Something was the, missing. 
something's missing. So really, people for a long time have overcomplicated the idea of structure. Really, all it comes down to is setting up and paying off. And if you don't do that, you don't have something properly structured. So I, I give a and lot the of- the setup is all conflict. In the so first... for example, I set up the mother uh, moving in with her daughter and then I don't pay off that something bad, funny or good funny is gonna happen. I haven't written a whole premise. I haven't written a whole story. If they get along well, it's really boring. Right. Well, Unless the two of them have to unite to against like, something else. As opposed to, well, Charlie Peters has always said, I mean, I Charlie's an old friend of mine, but he's always said is like, one of the hardest things to explain to students, Charlie taught at USC for many years, and for us briefly, but he said the hardest thing to explain to a student is, because in life, we all want to get along. We don't want conflict. We want to have a nice, easy... But that makes for a dull drama. He gave us a great quote in the book. He said, the hero of every, of every movie wants the script to end on page two. Right. Jack Black does not want to go to Skull Island and find King Kong. That's the last thing he wants to do. What were you going to say about uh, Back to the Future? You oh, were saying something. Oh, about... yes. Um, Short-term memory loss is a bitch, right? <laughs> uh, um, that everything they do in Back to the Future, everything they set up, everything, and this, and they went through like 20 drafts before they shot. Everything they do is paid off. Everything. So you feel really satisfied when you come out of that movie. You may not know why. Every joke they set up is paid off. No loose ends. Yeah. And that's really great writing. And so, and you're waiting for the sequel because he, at the end of the movie, he's like, where we're going, he takes the stinking badges line from, uh, what's the famous movie? The Mex Sierra Madre. Sierra Madre. And he Sierra says, Madre. Rhodes? He says, what about, you're backing up? What, you know, where, what about Rhodes? He says, Rhodes? Where we're going, we don't need no stinking rose, and it's right out of another movie, and and it sets you up for the you want you have to see that sequel now, but the third one, yeah, don't watch that. It's the <laughs> western; it's not very good. What are five things a writer should know about the TV writing room? Um, you take two and a half, and I'll take two. <laughs> Go ahead. You want me to start? Yeah, please. Um. Know that to get in, you've 90% chance you're going to have to work your way into the room as a, as a script assistant, as a writer's assistant. Those jobs are plentiful and they're great and you will get training. And know that it will take a while. Um, also know that when you're a baby writer, don't talk. Listen. Nobody likes someone who... Uh, answers questions. Um, know that most people are good at one or two things, but nobody's good at everything. I think I answered three. That leaves and, you And two. don't be the smartest person in the room. Never be ever, the smartest person. Ever. Why? Because everybody will hate you. <laughs> and Especially you the won't, showrunner. And you won't be the smartest person in the room, and everybody will see that. And really, you cannot be full of yourself in the room. I'm not going to mention the show, and I'm not going to mention... I will mention that it was my friend Bob, who who is very close, as I said, to Chuck Lorre, 
who gave Chuck Lorre his break, and Chuck will call him every once in a while, even though Bob is semi-retired, he'll call him up and say, I really need help. And it was a point a couple of years ago when he had five shows on the air. And he went on one of the shows and he pitched a joke. And he said to Bob, was that funny when you were working on, on uh, My Two Dads? Was that funny back then, Facts of Life? He was uh, just, and Chuck, and, and Bob went to Chuck and he said, I don't need the money, I'm out of here. And he left. You know, if you're a showrunner, the best kind of showrunner you can be is somebody who mentors other people, who's secure enough, like Phil Rosenthal, to really care about getting the best out of people. That's we, the best kind a, of leader a, anyway. We had a lot of great stories about rooms and showrunners. And Peter Casey was great. He said, I worked on the Jeffersons, and I came to... Uh, to the room late one day, and I hadn't eaten breakfast, so I brought a little box of cornflakes with me, and I went to the corner where the coffee was, poured it in and took a little of the cream, put it on there, and the guy said, that's not for your cereal, that's for the coffee, and he charged him like 25 cents for doing that. Oh, wow. And he said they would you know, feed us the worst food ever, and he said, when I went to work on Cheers with the Charles Brothers, they would take us out to really good restaurants, or if they had to work really late, they would call up one of the really good restaurants and we'd order from their menu and they would deliver it. He said they treated the writers with so much kindness and respect, he said, and they got such great work out of us. Nobody complained if it was late. Where with the Jeffersons, like everybody was grumbling all the time and hated being in the room. So he said, the Charles brothers made us purr like kittens. I don't think he actually said that, but. Okay. I'm taking yeah. license. Okay. Was there one other? I think you only got one in. No, that's four altogether. Four. So Maybe. five total. Any? Any? Five. Be five. careful. Be careful. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> know where the exit is. Well, I, I know this Watch is sort of this is sort of repetitious, but I think it bears repeating. Um, it's really important that when you get into a room, you use it as a learning experience because. You're one of very few people. Uh, when I started, there was still a freelance market. There really is no freelance market anymore. And so if you have the luck to get into a room, take advantage of it and be humble. And Peter's right. But I, I will add a fifth, just for the sake of completeness, that every room has a culture. Oh, that's true. And you want to spend a lot of time observing before you jump in. And just because one person makes a joke doesn't mean everybody makes jokes. Mm -hmm. And if one person kids another person, that doesn't mean everybody teases. And you want to wait, and when you really understand how people interact, then you slowly test the water and start to do it. My, and even then, you do it slowly. My two wonderful former students who were on One Day at a Time were on the show now they're in their second season. They're not the baby writers anymore. You see how that works. So they were on the show. They were on like three months. They were on like show seven or eight. And they hadn't said that much. I mean, they'd done their work. They were the first script their mentor wrote with them. So it was the three of them writing it, which was really generous of her. You know, that doesn't always happen. And she, one of them told me um, that they didn't say anything one day and one of the one of the writers said 
Caroline, we'd, we'd really like to hear what you guys think. You guys are these characters' age, is one of these characters' age opening. And yet she said she began by the old what if thing so that she left room to be wrong if they didn't like what she said. And she said they were, after that day, they were like, you guys, whenever you have something to say, say it. Don't be shy. But they were smart to wait. Um, because they, they were learning, they, they were, were observing, and they were only 25 years old. That's young to be in a room. So, uh, um, and they didn't think the show was going to get a second season. And now it's big hits, and Emmy nominated. It's you know, it's a big hit. And uh, by the way, you tricked us. You said only three more questions, and the first one is a five-parter. <laughs> Don't think that went past us. It, it went past me. <laughs> you make her laugh. Yeah, she has a low threshold. Okay. <laughs> the penultimate question. This is a lot of pressure. It's a good thing she's adorable, right? <laughs> you know that we're you know that we're judging your questions, right? That's okay, and I'm all I'm right not with judging that. Your I, I'm questions. at peace with that. All right, you're I, on it. Be, because I'm not at peace with him judging. Did, the did you have enough carrot juice to make you at peace with oh, that? Peter, yes, I did actually have ninety-two a lot of references juice. to carrot juice. I, I did. <laughs> I actually have to go back and get more because I'm running. I'm running low. <laughs> What are some... <laughs> See, another multiple parter. What are some? Go ahead. <laughs> what, are, what are some of the most important questions a screenwriter can ask themselves when developing a story idea? How much is it worth? <laughs> Ten points for each. That doesn't get you to 100. No, I, I think one, one important question is how universal is it? And, you know, you may be having the most esoteric story, but if it touches everybody, it's a universal story. If it's very, very narrow, then, then it doesn't. And so you're always saying, how are people going to relate to this? Can anybody find something in this relationship I'm creating, in this conflict that I'm creating, that they recognize something? And hence, that's why you asked the, the mother-daughter uh, premise for the book because you figured most people can relate. Well, this is a oh. generic old, old premise starting with my sister Eileen. Almost everybody has had a mother. Yeah, I think, I think, I think it was uh, <laughs> it was chosen because you could. Well, I don't know your background. Because I, you, know, you could do your born teacher. Well, she's a child of a single mother. She told us that. Yeah. If you'd been listening. Um. I have a slightly different take on that. I, I believe in the Stephen Sondheim dictum that the more personal a story is, and I don't mean by that autobiographical, that the more it matters to you, the more universal it's going to be. Yeah. And um, But both things are valid. It depends on the writer. I will tell you that if you try to write something commercial, you will fail every time out. For example... When Die Hard was a success, there was one there was one movie after another that came out with that kind of, you know, none of them were as good as Die Hard, and and then but but for every movie that came out like that, you know, hero in a in a trap place trying to save the world, whatever it is, with a sense of humor, uh, yeah, with a, that's very important. Uh, there were hundreds of scripts that were written that never saw the light of anywhere. So I, I believe that you have to write what you want to write. And yeah, if look I'm, at look at what Go Ahead Make My Day did. You know, everybody tried to come out with that. 
and that wasn't a new concept when when they when it was written i mean the bullet i was a bullet worked same kind of idea bullet was a more stylish cop but mm -hmm. Uh, the Dirty Harry movies are great. They're really well made. They're kind of the, the, the detective version of the, the spaghetti westerns, you know. But having that one cool line yeah. at the key moment. That... But today I don't think one cool line is going to make a great movie. Why? I think it was also the right actor for the right time for the late 60s, you know. Um, but I think the other thing you need is patience. To, well, all the things we've been talking about today, the the ability to tolerate um, ambiguity. Amb <laughs> what? Ambiguity. Ambiguity. He likes that word because nobody else understands it. Um, uh, to tolerate failure, to tolerate having to get up and try again the next day. No, no writing career can ever be made on one script. Um, I don't. There, you know, I really believe that you've got to write a lot and not judge it. Those are all things. We've talked about all this before, but yes, those are the things. And then, of course, being willing to show your work. Mm. Not you waiting have to show years. your work. If you're just going to put your work in a drawer and you're just doing it for your own pleasure, well, that's fine, but then don't say you want to be a professional writer. I'm waiting for the 19-part last question. Well, there was a follow-up to okay. something you said. Well, that's so cheating. <laughs> Let's go to the follow-up. The follow-up is... The penultimate you, point two. You said that most films could be based on, or, or the popularity could be based on one line. Like, I'm paraphrasing, but go ahead, make oh, my the day. Hook? Or, yeah, the hook, or, you know, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn, something like that. But yeah, the, but that had nothing happen. to do with the plot of the movie. That was just... That was character. That's just character, right. But you don't feel that today could be well you still they want a hook before they want to hear the premise before they want to hear the story so we used in something we're working on now we used back to the future you know uh, uh the hook would be uh a young boy goes back in time to prevent his to make sure his parents get married so he'll continue to exist i mean that's terrible i can't remember what we used that's a hook that's not a premise yet it's an idea for so to me a hook is it's it's an idea for a story um you know you know it's not yet you still haven't developed the story the thing you brought in earlier about the two brothers is much more developed than that but in terms of a line sort of living on past the film you oh, think those... oh you mean why do you know why do lines live on yeah. past the film are we beyond that Today. No, I don't, don't think we'll ever be. be on that. Uh, be beyond that. I mean, you get a, you get uh, memorable lines. Uh, as recently as when Harry met Sally, what's the line you remember from? Oh, that? I'll have what she's exactly. Yeah. You know that line was improv. It wasn't even a scripted line. That was Rob Reiner's mom. That's Carl Reiner's wife. But wasn't that from the nineties? Yeah. I mean, so yeah. I mean, anything today? Oh, you're saying now? <laughs> well, I mean, well, I mean, we, I think, we, well, I yes, guess. there's one in a recent movie. That I don't know. Have you guys seen Get Out yet? Not yet on the okay. list. So, I, mean, well, I, think, great... I think writers are always trying to write those lines, yeah. but and they're usually really self-conscious and and awkward. This wasn't because this is a movie. The only thing I can tell you about the movie it made you know it was made for nothing, and the guy was famous before he made it. The director is can feel it's wonderful. He had that show on on. Uh, 
on Comedy Central and he knows everybody. And But this is his first direct, this is his directorial debut. And the movie wasn't expected to do well and it's one of the most successful movies of the year. And there's a great line in it that I think will live on past the movie. And that's, the premise of the movie is a, a, a white girl takes her black boyfriend to meet the parents. Mm. That's not what the movie's about at all, no. but that's all I can tell you. It'll ruin the movie for you. But the father, the first thing the father says to the to the black boyfriend, who's actually played to my wife's consternation by a British actor, uh, he says, um, you know, I would have voted for Obama for a third term. Now, that line is brilliant. Mm -hmm. It's also in character. It has to do with the movie, but it's so witty. And it's so true that, that like, liberals like embarrassed liberals you know when they want to say something good in there around black it's part of what the movie is about that he that people will i mean he said in an interview that he gets that all the time from white liberals that you know well wish that i could have he could have had a third term you know uh but they're trying to show you how liberal they are so yes i think that i think peter's right i think we'll always have those just like Willow is in it, Paris. <laughs> but it's just it's just bad when you see it self-consciously written. Like, I think I've just written that line. Yeah. Well, it, you know, hopefully you're a good enough writer to see that and take it out, you know. Um, the, the other thing that really bugs me in, in writing is when the writer makes a reference that obviously doesn't belong in the period or they're trying to be too contemporary, you know, too contemporaneous. They're trying to be too hip. You know, so they'll make a joke about something that nobody would have made a joke about. In, I, mean, I see that all the time. I've probably done it many times. Um, but again, a, a great line is great. It's great for advertising, but it doesn't make a great movie. You know, uh, Bruce, there's so many lines in Die Hard, but that's not why the movie was successful. I have a theory about why that movie was unique and successful. He wasn't there to save the world. He was there to get his wife out of the building. Mm -hmm. And that's what made it human, you know? And, and uh, a lot of these, like Speed, which was a big success, which followed it, was such a contrived situation. You know, a bus that if it goes below, you know, a certain, you know, it'll blow up. I mean, come on. And then they manipulate you by having the old trick, which is everybody's used of having the partner killed, which raises the stakes, which can work. It worked great for, um, oh, come on, help me out. Um, uh, Lillian Hellman's boyfriend, who was blacklisted, um, uh, you know, a great mystery writer. Well, it's been used in a zillion movies. Yeah, but who was it? He was the guy who did it better than anybody in uh, 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 the, uh, the movie about the 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 birds oh, I'm blank. you know where there was something in the the stuff that dreams are made of is a classic line that we'll always we'll always know what, and that's from that? uh, Maltese Falcon oh okay what what line was it yeah um it's the stuff that you know when he oh, sees right. what's inside the birds you know it's the stones or whatever it is he says he's you know it's the it's the thing everybody's the MacGuffin that everybody's been looking for and he says ah the stuff that dreams are made of it's great right and, and then the other line in that movie that I love is, I'm not going over for you, sweetheart. <laughs> Meaning I'm not going to jail for you. <coughs> I love that movie. It's so well written. Dashiell Hammett, thank you for helping me so much with I'm that. I'm always there for you. <laughs>